Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, read A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 143, Brienne 1, in A Feast for Crows, Brienne Introduction, featuring Shiloh Carroll. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, it is a super, super exciting day. And we're really glad that we have Shiloh here. I mean, I've been waiting for this to happen for a long time. <laughs> I'd call it an honor. It Honestly, is an honor. we are, you know, in a chapter all about honor, <laughs> our friend Shiloh dropped by to bring her knowledge. Shiloh, hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on and <laughs> hanging out with us tonight. I know we've been uh, talking about it for what, two ish years at this point? Finally mm-hmm. managed to find a spot, you know. And our POV order doesn't allow us sometimes to to straight up go message people because it's very secretive. Mm-hmm. As you know, you've already been served NDAs, <laughs> you've been served all the litigation that Allie and Jake could send you, my cats. Uh, so, look, no one's perfect, but it's very secretive. You never know who the next POV is going to be. Yeah, many people were speculating on who would be the POV to follow up Catelyn and Shiloh. Shiloh kept it under wraps, so... <laughs> That's, we run a very secret Mad operation respect. here. Yep. <laughs> We're like very, very happy. Yeah. Well, and we like to ask people, you know, like ahead of time, like, hey, what's your fave POV? Oh, that's good. We'll see you in six years. No, I'm <laughs> We're just, just like, but We're just like, shit. <laughs> shit. <laughs> shit. Don't say that one. Don't say that <laughs> one. So if we haven't gotten back to you, now you know. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Tell everyone. Well, tell everyone a little about you and where they can find you and some of the really exciting works that you've created. Oh Hi, I'm Shiloh, and I'm a chocoholic. Wait, wrong group. Ooh. Um, <laughs> mm. My book, Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, is available. Most, I think most fans have probably have it by now, but in case you don't, that is out there. I'm working on another one, another book called Where Shadow Meets Grendel, Medievalism and the Works of Neil Gaiman. That one will be out in 2023 is what we're planning. Ooh. In the meantime, I have little like mini essays on medievalism and various pop culture things at shilohcarroll.wordpress.com and my just complaining about shit over on Twitter at medievalism-ish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the perfect, it's honestly the perfect handle for that. But <laughs> you do have to get that book. If you don't have that book in your shelf and you're in a Song of Ice and Fire fan, you should have it on hand just to reference. <laughs> I like to read, I like to read some of the good stuff, especially the good stuff on our girl here, Brienne. I mean, it's a great book and not only... Is it very enlightening for the series? I just learned new things through it, like as as you've discussed in other things about medievalism, mm-hmm. kind of upend that what we've been taught about it. So, mm-hmm. I want to make a quick aside. You said chocoholic. I don't know <laughs> if any of you have seen, and I was going to get some, but I haven't yet. There's like this new uh, chocolate brand where the bars are based off of different books. And like the flavors. Yeah. So like, for example, um, like inspired, like I forgot, like the one for like the little princess, which Chloe, there's a little princess chocolate. It's ah. inspired by like, I forgot one of the teas or something that's like someone really loves in the book. They have like a Call of Cthulhu one, which is like has like Nori in it. And then they have like a couple oh. of other ones. I'll, I'll see if I can find it and send you all the link. But I'm just curious. Oh my God. I would eat all of these. <laughs> I would. Shiloh, what's your? I guess we're coming right off of Halloween mm-hmm. oh, yeah. for us here. So, yeah. what's your what's your favorite chocolate? Um, probably those little Dove dark chocolate hmm. bites. Oh. 
yes, yes. You do melt in your mouth. Yes. Yes. I love dark chocolate. I am a dark chocolate. Same. You can just feed me dark chocolate. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up. (laughs) I feel like this is the crowd. (laughs) I started eating chocolate. (laughs) I'm keeping it in. (laughs) I had mine before we got started. Uh, (laughs) We don't get trick-or-treaters, but every year we think, what if we get them? Oh, you don't. Interesting. So, hmm. We don't either. No, so we don't really sit outside our house waiting, though, and yeah. I think that's kind of the norm for us around this area, so huh. plus succession was on last <laughs> night. You know. The children aren't we, that We had late. to drink champagne. You started earlier. Um, one of the houses on our block was also giving out like wine shots for the parents along with candy, mm. which was very sweet of them. I'm trick-or-treating at Eliana's <laughs> next year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll find a kid. I'll find some kid. <laughs> they, I mean, they would have given it to adults too. I think that they like offered some, and I was like, no, thank you. Which is probably I probably should have taken it, but I was trying to meet a cat, anyways. Um, Halloween is over though. It is now November, and that means we have a new Patreon episode coming out later this month. But last month, because it was Halloween, was about the spirits, creatures, and magical features in his dark materials. And that was a great episode. I had a lot of fun in that episode. I, we actually, like, we got into some really great folklore, some commonwealth lore, if you will. And this month, I think we're going to get into some good lore, too. It's going to be in a Song of Ice and Fire episode. In fact, it's going to be such a fun episode. We had to ask for two of our friends, who have been on the cast before, to come back and help us do it. It's Nymeria November. <laughs> it is indeed Nymeria November. I like to say November, and then as we were coming up on the month, I was like, November is nigh, and I thought I was very clever for that. Um, but <laughs> yes, and I mean, so we're going to be talking, of course, about Nymeria's voyages, and we're going to maybe talk a little bit about, like, if I'm not mistaken, we heard that maybe it's being considered for one of the television adaptations. So who else could we bring on to talk about Nymeria besides our good friend AK, the Lord Commander, Alicia Kingston, and Ashea from History of Westeros? Yes, the perfect Nymeria guests to bring on, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I even before you and I really got rolling rolling we were just getting rolling with girls gone canon but i did an episode on nemeria yes. with Ashea over at drunk aswaf history way back in the day so this is like that was foreshadowing this is it's happening in full the prophecy is fulfilled <laughs> indeed and so yeah i'm excited to get into that but more details about that will come out as we go Yes, and of course, those episodes and all of our special bonus episodes are available for patrons over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. That is our $5 tier and above. You have access every month to a new bonus episode, whether it's themed on A Song of Ice and Fire, whether it's themed on His Dark Materials, or other books. There may be other, other books and stories in your future, she said. (laughs) There might be, but who knows? Maybe. What is assured <sighs> is that we do have other things also on our Patreon. For people in the Thunder tier and above, the $10 and up level, you have access to our Patreon Discord, where we 
once a month get together and do brunch slash happy hour with games and giveaways and get to know yous. Yes, our Thunder tier patrons, $10 patrons and above, have access to that and like over 30 channels on the Discord to chit-chat in your heart's desire, talk about whatever you want, whether it's shit posting or books or media, all the fun stuff, or ASWAP. Uh, but this month we have not decided on the date yet. Maybe we'll mm. uh, bring that next week to you. I think we'll have a date by next week. We probably should. <laughs> November's getting filled up. I mean, it's a busy month as we get towards the end of the year. People make plans and shit. Yes, yes. And we also will have uh, His Dark Materials, The Amber Spyglass, an episode coming out for you at the end of the month. Last week of the month, last Friday of the month, we put those out. So keep an eye out for that on your feed if you are into the His Dark Materials trilogy or not just that trilogy, but the Books of Dust trilogy, which we've covered the very first one of. All right, housekeeping. It's over. The house is <laughs> kept. it in the trash. It's kept. We've kept the house. Thank God. <laughs> I don't know where we'd put all these kids if we didn't, Eliana. What kids? The bodies? The children. We- oh my God. Okay. It's Halloween. Halloween's <laughs> over. It's over. Uh, without further ado. <laughs> drum roll you know like the big stick i feel like this is this is the moment we're stepping up to the podium because we are here to talk about brienne she is the moment she is the moment she is literally the era the culture she is we're here to talk about the eldest daughter of selwyn tarth and we're going to do a lightning round and introduction for brienne before we get to a feast for crows because it's been just a little bit since we were with her. Not too long, right? Leaving off with Catelyn. We, we just saw her. We just waved goodbye to her. And here we are again. Brienne's mom died when she was really young. Brienne doesn't remember her. Her older brother, Galadin, drowned when she was eight and has two younger sisters who died in the cradle. As we first meet her in A Clash of Kings. Feels like it was yesterday. Gosh. <laughs> We meet Brienne supporting Renly, fighting her way through a melee at Bitterbridge and becoming Brienne the Blue of the Rainbow Guard. She becomes his standard bearer and arms him for battle prior to his death by Shadow Baby. She escapes with Catelyn Stark, arriving with her to River Run, though wanting to take vengeance for Renly's death. Instead, she remains in River Run to defend it through the Battle of the Fords and swears a vow to Lady Catelyn with Jaime Lannister to find her daughters. And then that brings us to A Storm of Swords. Because of the really fleshed out perspective we get of Brienne through Jamie's chapters, we actually get a lot of Brienne's character arc and transformation, like beginning even before we get to her chapters, right? We get the setup from Catelyn, we get changes and shit in Jamie's chapters. It's kind of like Jamie, right? Whose journey picks up from Catelyn's final clash chapter. Brienne, Cleos, Ray, and Jamie are sent by Catelyn to barter for Sansa and Arya to come home to the Riverlands. Brienne defends them ably, even saving them from being tricked into an ambush from an innkeep. Later, while Brienne and Jamie spar, they end up ambushed by different outlaws near Maidenpool and Cleos dies. It was it was a very dramatic sex scene. They've captured they're captured <laughs> by the Brave Companions, who chop off Jamie's hand. 
Brienne coaxes him through this, reminding him of the vengeance he can take in order to survive, and in turn, Jamie protects her when the companions look to assault her. They take her armor and then Renly's sword from her, but Rose Bolton wines and dines them from the clutches of the companions, allowing them an incredibly steamy bath full of post-traumatic stress to wash away their sins. Jamie is let go by Roos, but Brienne is kept as a hostage. Jamie dreams of her, though, and comes back to her rescue as she is left in Vargo Hote's clutches to dance with a bear. You want her? Go get her. So he did. Iconic. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's, <laughs> it's iconic. I don't like it. I love it. <laughs> <sighs> Finally, they are escorted by Steelshanks Walton to King's Landing, where Brienne learns (laughs) along the way Lady Catelyn was murdered, betrayed. Betrayal. (laughs) When they arrive in King's Landing, Brienne and Jaime are accosted by Loris Tyrell, who accuses Brienne of murdering Renly. In order to protect her, Jamie has her arrested, like any sensible boyfriend would do. <laughs> Jamie then pulls his own Catalan-style scene, freeing Brienne, charging her with part of the sword, ice, in the form of Oathkeeper, to go seek Sansa Stark, not the dead one, Arya, who's totally dead, he says, and sends her with a Lothstan shield, male hauberk, and some major cash, like major cashola, and a paper shield from Tommen. <laughs> God, I love Brienne so much. Uh, she's she's shy and she's awkward and has like no self-esteem, but by the God, she's going to live up to her own expectations regardless of the cost to herself. I know a lot of people give her chapters shit because they don't think anything happens in them. And I mean, they're wrong, but the structure of them is so very medieval romance that they they have a special place in my all things medieval loving heart. Uh, For a modern audience, medieval romances can be really hard because they don't follow that Aristotelian structure that we're all familiar with, the rising action, climax, falling action, blah, 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 blah. They're a lot more episodic, and the structure is almost circular with the protagonist returning to people or places or encounters. Romances focus a lot more on character development and the knight becoming who he's supposed to be. And if I can get a little bit academic here, and quote from Jonathan Evans's article, Episodes and Analysis of Medieval Narrative, medieval romance narratives tend to display a loosely knit sequential structure of individual adventures strung serially along a line of action in which the only stable factor generally is the identity of the main character himself. He also notes that romance protagonists seem to ride interminably from place to place beset by an unending string of foes, challenges, tests, and other obstacles. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) At all. (laughs) I don't know. A little bit. A little bit. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. To a T. Um, And Brienne's struggle with her identity as sir, lady, son, daughter is also very romance hero because identity is a major part of romance, just like it's a major part of A Song of Ice and Fire. And my prediction for the end is that she'll find a place that fits her rather than fitting herself into a prescribed place in society. I'm rooting for Lady Commander of Sansa's Queensguard myself. Um, I have done more work specifically on Brianna's Galahad, if, and that's up on my website if y'all want more of me going on about, like, romances and knights and Arthuriana and shit. Yes. Um, I do want to say, because I know Eliana has a lot of thoughts on this, too, in return, <laughs> 
But I do want to say, like, I hear a lot of people say that Sam is, like, the nerd POV, right? Like, everyone is Sam. And Mm. uh, I love Sam and I relate to Sam a Mm -hmm. lot. However, Brienne, for me, is that POV. Mm -hmm. You know, like, we've all been that character in our minds, you know, us three, especially, I think, in reading fantasy and fiction as children through now. Uh, So I really love what you said about Brienne and her insecurities, because that that feels like that's just the reader, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the camera that when she showed up as a POV, that's our camera. Absolutely. She's, she's, as you said, really, really relatable. And we're also going to link the essays that you wrote on Brianna's Galahad and all those other thoughts on Arthuriana um, regarding A Song of Ice and Fire in there, too. Not all of them. Just the ones about Brianna and Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, I'm sorry. I overpromised. There's a lot of those. Let me back <laughs> um, But yes, of course, check out Shiloh's blog. There's a lot of extensive great thoughts. And yeah, I mean, my thoughts here are more of like less of thoughts. They're more of just a summary of this thing that actually this was a this was a story I heard about when someone that I met at the comic book store, they were leaving to go do their like masters and they were deciding what they wanted to like do it on. And I forgot what the other one was, but this is the one that they were also considering. Um, Mm -hmm. And it does dig into a little bit of what you were saying about identity and uh, between a sir lady and a son and daughter as a hero of the chivalric romance, because this story called Le Roman de Solence is a 13th century text. And I I thought it was like really fascinating when I heard about it. Um, it's like also Arthuriana, but very, very relatively recently rediscovered, considering how old a lot of these stories are and how old a lot of them, mm-hmm. like how long a lot of them have been in like public discussion, because people were like, I don't know, this, they didn't care about this manuscript and thought it was like weird and had it in a crate marked unimportant documents in like someone's room until like 1911. Weird. All right. <laughs> It is rude because it's, it's like, kind of blowing people's minds. They're like, wait, this is a story from, from like, the medieval era. It's authored by Aldri de Cornwall, and it's written in Old French, and it follows, like, the heir of the Earl of Cornwall, Catter, who weds the Earl's daughter, Euphemi. And King Evan, like, has decided that daughters cannot inherit because, like, these other two counts who marry twin daughters, they kill each other, like, fighting over the inheritance. And King King Evan was like, I don't like that men are killing themselves over women. So therefore decides to punish the women and, like, it's like, women can't inherit anymore. And Cador is like, I don't like that. And decides, hey, you family, even if we have a daughter, let's tell everyone she's our son and raise her as our son. And that's what they do. There's a lot of fun, interesting things like nature and nurture get, like, personified in the story. They argue with each other of, like, oh, this is how, like, Silence, a.k.a. Silence, is supposed to be. Nature's like, I'm gonna make her, like, super beautiful. And so I guess she's technically named Silencia, but for a lot of the story, it goes by the name Silentius. Well, she's living her life as a man, both as a knight and later a minstrel, and it's, like, this masculine form of the name. And you know what, like, he's really good at being a knight and being a minstrel, way better than everyone else. And because it's in Old French, it's really also fascinating how they do it because it's a gendered language, um, more so than than English is, because even, like, the adjectives and the nouns have genders. So the story even speaks of Silentius using masculine pronouns a lot of the time and using a lot of the masculine form of these words and adjectives there's also like a traveling and evil queen like Euphem, and i don't know why her name is so similar to like 
Silence's mom. Like, that's really <laughs> weird. Um, because she's also, like, really, really into, like, Silentius and gets re- rejected by Silentius and then makes up, like, a false rape accusation. So, like, I'm not going to say, like, this is a bastion of, like, progressive thought in regards to this. It's also the 13th century, so, like, things are <laughs> clearly, clearly different. But um, they're also, like, then she's all like, oh, well, I'm going to get back at Silentius and, like, they have to, like, send it him to capture Merlin who can only be caught by the trick of the woman and therefore like that works because Silentius has like secretly also a woman and then ends up like going by Silentia by the end and wedding Evan the king and anyway it's mm. it's it's a lot of twists and turns happen clearly <laughs> it's also surprisingly very 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 similar to the manga Princess Knight by Osamu Tezuka uh, whom some of you may know as the creator of Astro Boy, despite Tezuka never having read this work at all, there's a lot that's incredibly similar. And I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I don't think George has read this work either. Uh, but it has become a much more popular text like in the 90s as people have been like looking towards it to study in terms of like gender and sexuality. So it, it, it's become a something that has made its rounds more in gender studies lately. Mm-hmm. So you all are always asking for people to ask George questions. And this is mine. Like how much medieval lit has he actually read? I mean, he's obviously familiar with the medieval history through the historians, but I can't tell if he's read more than like the Morta Arthur. And I would just love to know how familiar he is with the literature and not just the history. I think that's a good question. I'm not brave enough to ask that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's a good question, and I also like think that a lot of people, and that's why I'm saying I don't think George has read this. I think if people give George mm-hmm. a lot more credit in terms of like knowing all these stories from around the world than mm-hmm. I think he necessarily has read or has had the time for. You know, like there's there's mm-hmm. so many things that we didn't have the internet back then. You know, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so like just the idea of Brienne, who's like a knight. Right. As you pointed out, like meandering, mm-hmm. going to all these different places, meeting people in challenges. Right. And Brienne's mm-hmm. meandering not just geographically through these adventures, but also meanders across gender. Mm-hmm. It's not strange at all for a chivalric romance. Like literally history has one. Yep. That's such a good question because there's so I mean, his work is so easily paralleled to so many others of his time, like not of his time, mm-hmm. but before his time. And it's just, it is easily paralleled to a lot of different stories that it's like, is it storytelling itself? Mm -hmm. Is it, or has he actually read something? And that's, I would love a little checklist. Like, George, could you just do this quick (laughs) 200 book survey for us? 200 literature piece. This BuzzFeed quiz of what you've read and what you haven't. Mm -hmm. How well read are you, George? (laughs) Listen, George, really important. Just so I can understand moving forward. No, but, (laughs) you know, there's even one, uh, and I think Shiloh, you'll have something to say about this too, but Robin McKinley's books throughout the 70s and 80s, it makes me wonder... First, I mean, there's Beauty, a Beauty and the Beast retelling from 1978, The Blue Sword in 1982, Mm -hmm. and its prequel, The Hero and the Crown, that came in 85. They're heavily Arthurian, uh, a good nod to Brothers Grimm, a clear call to adventure, call to heroism, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's something really, really interesting in it. Like, just a few things and just themes of female knights and honor Right, in the Beauty and the Beast retelling, uh, her name is Honor. Beauty's name is Honor. 
And as a child, her sisters get like prettier and they all marry off, but she stays plain. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. Cla- the rest is classic Beauty and the Beast stuff. Mm-hmm. It's nothing really interesting. But the blue sword is the one that makes me think the most of Brienne. Mm-hmm. A, the blue sword. I mean, that one's that that sticks out. And even a little bit of Arya. Like when I was thinking about it deeply, I'm like, oh, wait a second. There's a lot of Arya and a lot of Brienne in these stories because the blue sword follows Harry, an orphaned young woman, to a desert outpost where her brother is stationed in the military. Uh, and she meets a mystical king, unlocks her own powers, saves the desert outpost from invasion, but she brings peoples together to do so, and she becomes a king's rider and heir to the blue sword, which no woman has wielded since the legendary heroine Lady Erin of the history books. Harry the Orphan comes out in that, and also the blue sword for Brienne, Mm -hmm. but also stitching and needlework and all of these I'm not like other princess tropes that again makes me go like, is it the storytelling and is it the genre or this one feels like an homage, you know, Mm -hmm. in certain ways. Is it an archetype or is it a direct influence? Exactly. It's hard to find. Though we do know he is really into Beauty and the Beast. That Mm -hmm. one we do know for sure. That (laughs) gave me alarms. That makes, And that's why I'm like, this one might actually be something that he's thinking of, because like Beauty and the Beast and the time that that was released, 78, mm-hmm. which people think that that actually influenced the Disney one a lot, because there's a lot of direct pulls, like her being very bookish is a direct pull from that. Hmm. People have said in the past, like, I think Disney copped a little bit off that, so it wouldn't surprise me since George was very Beauty and the Beast minded at the time before he, you know. Yeah. Had the television show. He had to write his own Beauty and the Beast fanfic, so. (laughs) I'm sure he's seen every Beauty and the Beast iteration, let alone read as many as he could. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that's possible. That one, I'm like, maybe. Maybe he did. I mean, he literally has. I mean, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, though. La Belle et la Bette. That one is straight up. I mean, the Blackwater episode, he literally parallels Mm. Sansa and Sandor's scene as Beauty and the Beast from that rendition. And it's like, it's completely one for one. It is intense. And he loves Cocteau, mm-hmm. obviously. obviously. <laughs> um, so I, I just think I'm sure he's seen them all. And he's seen them all. Yeah, that one, that one I wouldn't be afraid to ask him. I just, I'm just not ready out there to spit fire hot takes, George. How much, <laughs> You've like, got a long list of questions. I do, actually. Um. <laughs> well, that leads us into our actual first real live lightning round. For what we missed between the start of the book of A Feast for Crows and Brienne Chapter 1. Yes. Prologue. Pate the pig boy hopes to win Rosie's heart, but meets an alchemist on the way who leads him quite astray. Human transmutation, not even once. (laughs) (laughs) That is leading people astray. (laughs) The prophet... Aaron Greyjoy's brother has returned to claim the salt chair. <laughs> Sorry for who I am. I want to quit. Aaron <laughs> calls for a king's moot to occur in Old Wake. <laughs> the captain of guards. Prince Doran takes a temperature check of the sand snakes and they're locked up for being far too spicy. Which now that I realize it these days, 
That could also be bad. <laughs> Cersei won. Cersei dreams of herself on the Iron Throne, ruined only by Tyrion's mocking face and also all of the throne devouring her flesh. She wakes to news of her father's death and Tyrion's escape. And that brings us to Brienne 1, A Feast for Crows. I am looking for a maid of three and ten, highborn, with blue eyes and auburn hair. And that's it. You know, that's that's the driving thing. That's the driving goal for a lot of Brienne's plot. Obviously, more things happen because there's other internal plot, but that's the external driving factor. And I find that kind of funny about Brienne's story because along with those elements of chivalric romance, George has kind of returned to like, he kind of just like loves coming back to this detective mystery novel thing that he started the series out with, with Ned, and then to an extent also Catelyn has that too. But Brienne is now playing detective to chase down their daughter. Wow, it's like, is this about surrogate parenting? Like becoming a detective? I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> none of these people have been trained as private investigators, though, as we can tell by how the investigation goes and its success <laughs> or lack thereof. But it is fun to see that that all fleshed out much more explicitly as Brienne's like thinking through the reasoning and questions. It's a Ned all over again, right? Mm -hmm. She has her own little Ned, Nedard plot going on. <laughs> but no one has seen this maid, not the blacksmith, the good wife who calls Brienne sir, nor the septon, nor the girl pulling onions in her garden, nor anyone in the huts of Rosby. So romances often start out with the hero leaving the familiarity and stability of the court and going out into the world to have adventures and encounters with people who are not of the court, which is what Brienne's doing here. Um, we did see her do something similar with Jamie in A Storm of Swords, but this is the first time we've seen her out on her own as a knight errant on a quest. Yeah, she's building up her character on her own. I mm -hmm. love it. She does go through a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Example now, still she persists. This is the shortest way to Duskendale. And she continues her trek, asking the guards at the castle gates if they had seen her either. If she's on the roads these days, she won't be no maid for long, said the older man. The younger wanted to know if the girl had that auburn hair between her legs as well. I will find no help here, Brienne thinks. <laughs> Jesus, literally out of the gate, Brienne's like, wow, what pile of misogyny do I want to deal with today? Which, coming off of Cersei's first chapter, you know, in the last chapter, is the perfect place to be. Perfect place to just turn to a new brand of misogyny. Yeah, George really subjects Brienne, like more than any other female character, I think, to this sort of frat boy bro code level of misogyny that it just reminds me of any story you've ever heard of a girl or a woman trying to do something male coded like be a knight in Brienne's case yeah that is exactly how to put it you know it's the local chick joining the football team story in the news mm -hmm. is here and here we are and it's apparently not acceptable in Westeros and it's like it, it ranges, right? Like, some of it is god-awful. Some of, of, of what she deals with is god-awful, but some of it is, like, this monotonous bit of misogyny. It's just, like, a misogyny oatmeal that she has <laughs> to trudge through the entire time, just enough to be utterly annoying and bring your spirit down every day, hourly intervals. And it's almost really fitting that she has to start her plot off 
going to Duskendale, which is exactly where the Northern Mm -hmm. Campaign kind of failed and lost, right? Where we left Catalan's chapters that they'd all been tricked over in Duskendale and grief overcame them. And uh, wait a second, wasn't it Roos Bolton who did all that betraying? Hmm. Same guy that betrayed Brienne, too, right? Hmm. When you think about it. (laughs) I also think this is like comparable to the first chapter of Storm for Jaime. Uh, Starting the book is that Riverlands quest chapter for Jaime. And now Brienne is beginning her Riverlands adventure, but going the opposite direction, right? Going the exact opposite direction. They're both on very opposite paths. Mm Mm-hmm. They are, but yet their paths will converge later on. Anyway, she tries to talk to a boy on a horse. Hi, Pod. But he vanishes, and she doesn't give chase. Sansa's not here. It's time to move on to Duskendale. She had lingered too long and learned too little in the city. I should have set out earlier. Sansa Stark had vanished. Brienne wonders where she would go, a maid, newly flowered, alone, afraid. She thinks she'd go home to Tarth to her father, but Sansa was made to watch her father lose his head. Her mother had been murdered at the twins, and Winterfell was sacked and burnt. And this gives us a quick, here's what you missed in a Storm of Swords check-in, to remind us of Sansa's predicament and how impossible this quest is going to be for Brienne. Yeah, it's... It's difficult. It's difficult. And I know that readers struggle with it because they're all like, wait, oh, where Sansa is? And I I think for some people that takes the takes the wind out of the sails for uh, Brienne's narrative, but it's irony. Anyway, so Sansa, as you all know, has no home, no family, allegedly. She could be one town over or on a ship to Ashai. And I do think it's interesting that Brienne wonders where Sansa would go as a maid newly flowered, because Brienne can actually wonder that for herself. She is once been considered newly flowered, and having had to go through those same predicaments and having had to learn to deal with this question of safety on the road, which pretty much pervades her entire POV and also this chapter, how she would be able to have that freedom of movement. And then she realizes that, well, despite that exercise and empathy, turns out Sansa's options are actually real different from mine, lol, because her family's dead, (laughs) allegedly, Um, which I also find just as amusing. But it, it is interesting just to see Brienne put herself in Sansa's shoes, considering that Kat has seen them as similar in their love of stories, and many readers point to similarities between the two of them. We are going to uh, not just the similarities between Brienne and Arya, though those are also there. The show seemed to really want us to see that too. And those though some of the conclusions, interestingly, that Brienne draws about where Sansa could have gone aren't that far off from the choices that Arya made. And she comes so close every single time. <laughs> too. Like she's always like right there. She's always like, "Well, I guess I would have gone to the Vale." And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> yes, but not like that. But yes, <laughs> yes. God, we're so close." Uh, and no one remembered her leaving at the docks or any ship leaving in King's Landing. When she was there, she had learned the ships they did see were all heading to Duskendale, which is why we are too. And this is where we see Peter's sneakiness really paid off, because we're shown how he avoided questions like this being answered, because, for example, he didn't push off from a dock, but he used a sneaky boat to get Sansa way out into the bay to to his ship instead. So it's perfectly designed to make sure nobody will ever figure out how Sansa got out of the city. Right down to killing the guy who rode her over. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yep. Uh, poor Dantos, you sad motherfucker. <laughs> and actually, though, and the you, poor. Yeah. I know. I mean, I f- especially, and we're actually, I feel bad for him here, especially as we go to Duskendale, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the memory of him as a little boy being spared by Ares, right, at the Defiance, really rings through these couple chapters for Brienne, for me. Whenever I read it, I think about that, and I think about how Littlefinger was like, "Yeah, you'll do." You'll do. You'll make a good arrow punching bag for the day. <sighs> the port at Duskendale is busy. It's full of begging brothers, silent sisters, ox carts, an old woman in a horse litter with mounted guards. None of them have seen a maid of three and ten, and one man has warnings for her of the road ahead. Outlaws and broken men remain in the woods. And I just wanted to just pause here for a second because I think George does something really clever here with the begging brothers and the Septon on the palfrey. That reminds me of Chaucer a lot. And Chaucer's so anthologized that I think we can assume that he's probably read some Mm -hmm. Chaucer, at least. In the Canterbury Tales, we get a bunch of different characters at different walks of life, but there's several different types of clergy that Chaucer's using as commentary on the church. And this section in particular reminds me of the monk. Monks were supposed to take vows of poverty and live in their monasteries and stuff, but Chaucer's monk is big and loud and he loves hunting and wine and basically doesn't hold to any of the rules that he's supposed to. But Chaucer's narrator doesn't call him out, he just tells us about him, and it's up to the reader to recognize that the monk is derelict in his duty. And here George has a blink-and-you-miss-it moment where he contrasts the begging brothers with with a septon on an incredibly expensive horse during wartime Mm. when people are literally starving to death. And it's such a subtle yet effective call out about how the upper echelons of the faith aren't taking care of the people at all. That's a great catch. Not at all. Not at all. And we see a lot of contrasts of, I, I think that's such a great catch and a great call out because we see, yeah, different kinds of, Allegedly people of faith, right? Throughout Mm. Brienne's journey. I do think it's interesting that she doesn't regard them personally, like, any different for who they are, too. You know, like, of the people she comes across, she doesn't really treat them at all. I mean, she kind of stays silent and surveys for safety, but you don't see her think any different way on any of them. They're just people she meets on the road, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. She gives us, like, a really fair analysis of them all. She wants us to choose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> choose your own adventure. And choose we have. Oh, <laughs> choose that, we have. That. Turn to page 786 and yell sword. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. She just keeps uh, choosing the different path. We're like, the veil, the veil! <laughs> As you said. <laughs> <laughs> she starts to wonder if Jamie giving her this task was a cruel joke. Sansa could be dead, beheaded in King's Landing in an unmarked grave. How better to conceal her murder than send Brienne to find her? But she reminds herself, Sir Jamie wouldn't do that. He gave me the sword and called it Oathkeeper. Anyway, it made no matter. She had promised Lady Catelyn she would bring back her daughters, and no promise was as solemn as one sworn to the dead. It's an interesting contrast between Jamie's sense of honor and Brienne's, because Jamie's is very outward focused and depends a lot on what other people think of him, which makes sense when you consider his personality and his psychology, but also the actual medieval definition of honor being your reputation and your place in the pecking order, and sometimes a horse. 
Uh, but, but Brienne's is inward focused and more about her being able to live with herself and think of herself as the kind of person who protects the weak, keeps her promises, all the thing that all the things that knights are supposed to swear to do, despite her not being a knight yet. <laughs> yet. yet, and I mean. That is kind of like the biggest, we'll, we'll talk about Duncan the Tall, this entire mm-hmm. POV. Let's be real. He'll come up. He'll come up. And this chapter is very sworn sword. I mean, mm-hmm. right down to the Feast for Crows imagery going on, obviously. They're one and the same, hand in hand. But I do think that she is more of a knight than most knights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's the big thing and the big question. People say, well, no one legitimately really knighted Dunk is the theory. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, but he's still... I'd go to him first. Yeah. <laughs> I'd point at that. And maybe that's the big, dummy, thick himbo muscles, but I'd go to that guy first. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and a lot of people do. Um, all I'm saying. Egg, yeah, th- Egg exactly. thought it was a good idea. Egg was like, I'm going to him. <laughs> Egg was like, this guy got it. <laughs> and then, I'm over here like, this guy fucks. And then his family's like, you just fucked this man. And he's like, oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> It's in my blood, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it is, Egghead. It is. Egghead. Oh, and you'll kill so many other men, too. Oh, my God. Well, speaking of killing all the them. happiness going on. <laughs> okay, I didn't notice this line before until Shiloh was, you know, speaking about the promises and all these great things, but solemn as the one sworn to the dead. Solemn? A solemn promise? For silent sisters and stoned hearts? Is that what's going on there? That line really struck out to me this time. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Feels intentional, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Well, promise that promise me. is going to come back to bite you. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. And for Stoneheart, wouldn't it be more, promise me? <laughs> uh, yes, it would. And also, I mean, could you be like, this isn't solemn anymore now that you're back? Happy for you, cat. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, now that you're hissing things through your fucking throat hole, <laughs> that's not solemn either. It's not a very solemn <laughs> mood. Oh. God. So... Something about this and about her thinking of Jamie and Jamie wouldn't do that to me uh, makes me think of Cersei's chapter that we just passed while doing this chapter. And of course, this is the chapter that opens with Cersei dreaming she's above the courtiers, only to be slashed and gouged into pieces by the Iron Throne, which she then blames on her brother somehow as the barbs of the Iron Throne bite into her flesh and blood runs red down her leg. Steel teeth gnaws at her buttocks. Uh, Just some really dark imagery. The last sentence of it is, The more she struggled, the more the throne engulfed her, tearing chunks of flesh from her breasts and belly, slicing at her arms and legs until they were slick and red, glistening. It's still Halloween in this house, is what I'm saying. (laughs) But that stood out to me in the last chapter, because is that not unlike the end of Brienne's feast chapters? Right? Biter's mouth tore free, full of blood and flesh. He spat, grinned, sank his pointed teeth into her flesh again, chewed and swallowed. He is eating me, she realized, but had no strength left to fight him any longer. Very similar in just the grotesque biting and stabby, fleshy, grossy imagery. And the other things that I noticed in that chapter that stand out really heavily is their exact opposite kind of situations, that Cersei is surrounded by knights in King's Landing and her dead father 
and she doesn't know where her creepy little brother that she thinks is responsible for everything is. And she's kind of stuck with Jamie, who she's not really... He, he's a centerpiece of the chapter in some aspects because he's refusing her hand job. And for Brienne, you know, she's wondering, is he dooming me? Is he fucking me over? Uh, but Brienne and Cersei are in opposite situations. Cersei's stuck beneath the Iron Throne that she dreams of, right? She's trapped beneath power where Brienne feels that she's not welcome to come home, right? Without dishonoring not only herself, but her father in some aspects. And she's kind of trapped on this road looking for A, her existence, right? Hoping to find her existence and forge her existence on the road amidst the throes of an oath. And both of them are wishing for those opposite things. Brienne for peace and safety. And Cersei lusts for a storm to, to have wrath shake through the Seven Kingdoms. I do love that we get these opposite lines where... Cersei is begging Jamie, saying, We're his heirs, Jamie. It's up to us to finish his work. You have to take father's place as a hand. You see that now, surely. And at the same time, Brienne is thinking, Jamie would not do that. He was sincere. He gave me the sword and called it Oathkeeper. So you can kind of see where Jamie's sitting in the middle of these two POV chapters many times throughout this book, mm-hmm. which is just chef's kiss when George lines that shit up in a row for us. Uh, you can see what he's sitting between. It's mm-hmm. very clear. Mm-hmm. His family probably won't break him on her, unlike for other people. Jamie, as we all know, put Brienne on this quest, and as he did so, told her that Arya was long dead, and that, you know, the Arya that we sent north to the Boltons, that one is fake. So all we really want to do is find Sansa. We all We only got Sansa, right? Because the other one is a deep fake Arya, and I haven't really thought about this much before, but I kind of feel it's important. I mean, like, yeah, of course, Theon knows that Jane isn't Arya, but, like, does both Jamie and Brienne knowing that the Bolton claim through the Starks isn't real, would that ever mean anything? I think it definitely would if all of the Boltons weren't going to die before anybody could actually call this claim into question. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And... Yeah, it would take, like, post-Cersei Jamie for that to happen, I feel like, or for him to... Because, like, he pretty much, in this chapter, too, he's, she thinks, like, oh, he was like, Arya's dead, bitch. <laughs> that bitch dead! She's dead! That girl is dead as fuck, Brienne! He's like, I know dead motherfucking kids. She's one of them. Well, uh, he might not, all right, because he failed to kill that one kid. So maybe he doesn't know. I know that's what I'm saying is he's not very good at it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's not as good at dead kids as he thinks. But by the end of The Wind's a Winner, I'm sure he'll be a master at having dead children. He has one now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Two more. I guess Brienne would find out anyway through the Brotherhood. Like they'll be like. Right. But you know who we saw? Funny story. Arya Stark. That's uh, well, that's so funny. She was here, man. She was just here a couple books ago. Imagine them telling that to Lady Stoneheart. You know what's so funny? I saw Arya. <laughs> just the other day. Well, near dusk, Brienne sees two men grilling trout. And their armor is stacked beneath a tree. The younger man greets Brienne, inviting the sir to come have trout with them. She thanks them, takes off her helm, and they're shocked at her being a giant armored lady. This trout feels meaningful. What does it mean, Eliana? I don't know yet, but it feels meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) 
I do think it's it, it's a meaningful interaction, right? It's one of the many we'll come to with like characters like Nimble Dick, with her and her having to trust these men that we'll talk about. I meant the trout of House Tully. I mean, she's already accepted eating a trout if she's going to be like, true. thumbs up Jamie Lannister. Maybe she just chomps on Lady Stoneheart. That's how she... <laughs> I mean, she did to bite... Well, Biter did that to her yeah. cheek, and that she could learn it from there. Anyway. She ate Vargo's ear. Oh, that's so true. She's practicing. <laughs> yeah. She's been waiting all her life to eat a real trout. <laughs> uh, Brienne thinks freakish is the word most people would use to describe her. Broad in the shoulder, broader in the hips, thick and long arms and legs, mm. her chest more muscle than bosom, her hands big, her feet enormous, and her face freckled, horsey, full of big teeth. All right, I just have a couple thoughts. You know, stay with me. No, really, why does she sound so hot, though? Mm-hmm. I, right? <laughs> like, George might not be bisexual, but I am. And big feet and hands to stomp on me with mommy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and I, I won't go much farther than this, but I, I, I get in trouble, you know, when I act like Brienne might be unconventionally attractive on the internet so maybe everyone else who thinks anyways but there is this line in the front of the books between ned and aria that it makes me think of right because ned says of liana you remind me of her sometimes you even look like her liana was beautiful aria said startled everybody said so it's not a thing that was ever said of aria Arya was called horseface by Jane Poole and Sons all the time, and Arya is generally accepted as a good-looking kid. That's all. Have a nice day. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that in this particular case, they only comment on her size. She goes from there to freak, ugly, horsey, because she's heard it her whole life. So any any comment on her look sends her into that anxiety spiral about all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Tyrion's lecture to John at the beginning mm-hmm. of all of these books, where he's like <laughs> talking about like armor yourself in it, and it can be never used to hurt you. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. But but the way that we see Tyrion do it, and and that kind of echoes what you're showing that Brienne is doing here. You're not letting other people hurt you with it because instead you're hurting yourself with it. They use it yeah. to to punish themselves, and as you said, go into this spiral. Not unlike Kendall in season three, episode three of Succession last night, honestly. And yeah, wow, you're just going to spoil this. Did you get spoiled? No. Did you all just no, get spoiled off of me comparing? Be. I have seen zero of Succession, so. Kendall Roy breathed in Succession. I mean, he does that every episode, next. so it's fine. <laughs> Spiraling? Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that is really pointed, like, throughout it. I mean, it's not, you know, that's self-imposed right there that just, you know, you're just freakishly tall, like six foot something, George said. He's like, not even that tall. She's not like six, seven. He said she's uh-huh. like six, one ish, six, two ish, you know, a normal tall, a sexy <laughs> tall. Get on, girl. Go ahead with yourself. <laughs> she asks these men if they've seen Sansa in her quaint little way, maybe in company of a portly red faced knight, but they haven't seen either. They invite her over to eat, and she surveys them, coming to the conclusion they are hedge knights and don't look dangerous. She asks their names, and I do love this line that she thinks, a hedge knight and a robber are two sides of the same sword, it was said. With how Brienne's arc comes around later on with the broken man speech that we get from Septim Maribald, 
the contradiction of being a daughter born a woman trying to become a knight. She's always walked that edge of being a daughter, a son, a maid, a knight, but she also kind of is tilting between these worlds of class, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's being with Jamie and having, you know, getting that sugar daddy sword on the side, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Or uh, whether it's her being a hedge knight, not quite a real knight, not yet a robber knight, maybe later, maybe that comes later with the brotherhood. Who knows if she goes rogue, but... She has to fit in and at the same time be aware of all of these classes of knights and people. And in some aspects, she does feel a sense of superiority when she surveys them, right? That she is morally, ethically above them, because she is. Uh, and she has her own little space. I mean, she, she should be. She should feel that way. But she has her own space where no one is like her. There are no women like her. Just her. There are some. They're on Bear Island. Um, yes. <laughs> but she doesn't know that yet. Alas. Um, but yeah, I love what you pointed out here about class and there there is. I'm like surprised. I'm like, Brienne, chill. Chill. They're just like poorer than you. And <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. But I, I mean, there are definitely ways that Brienne holds to morality better than others. And that comes from also, you know, her seeing those other aspects. You were saying she's not a knight. She's not a lady. Not yet a knight. Like Britney Spears says <laughs> in her song. <laughs> I knew where you were taking Thank it. You. That's where Thank I wanted you. you to, I wanted you to take me there. Not a lady. Not yet night. Okay. Anyways, so a lot going on with Brienne's identity and also with these people's identities, because the men are Creighton Longbow, famous from the Blackwater. He has a green shield with a brown chief and a battle axe gouge upon it, and Sir Illifer the Penniless. Wearing gold and ermine, journey, rough sun mantle, and mail, Brienne stands a head taller than either of them and thanks them, saying she will gladly share the trout with them, stacking her arms and shields and saddlebags below an elm as they eat... <laughs> The knights tell her that they're heading to Duskendale, and she should probably ride with them because the roads are very dangerous, and when she thinks them, they insist because she's the gentler sex and they must defend her. <sighs> she touched her sword hilt. This will defend me, sir. The sword's only as good as the man who wields it. I wield it well enough. As you will. It would not be courteous to argue with a lady. We'll see you safe to Duskendale. Three together may ride more safely than one alone. It's probably the most benign sexism she'll face in her entire story, but it's still sexism. Like you were saying, that uh, oatmeal. Just this this cloud of oatmeal, oatmeal sexism. She just yeah. has to deal with Everywhere. constantly. <laughs> it's like the infantilizing it's a aspect work environment. of it. Yeah. Yes, yes. When she obviously does not need to be infantilized, like, Thank you, so kind, but there's no need to, like, I know you're feeling a little short today, but <laughs> no need to talk down at me, toward me. Yeah. No need to talk toward me in this manner. <laughs> like, I could pick you up and rock you like a baby. She should pick him up and spank him. That's what <laughs> she, she should do. She done. should do, like, Mulan when Mulan first gets to the camps. So that might also be part of why yes. I love Brienne so much, because I really love Mulan. Um Creighton and Illifer, I, I find them really great characters with which to open Brienne's story. And, and they're just fun in general. They feel mm-hmm. kind of like physical embodiments of some of those questions that Brienne is facing or responses to them. Because Creighton very much feels like the concept of idealizing knighthood, right? He's lost trying to live his life as a song so much that he cannot see, as we've said, that Brienne could definitely kick his ass. 
And Illifer kind of feels to me a little bit like a, a version of Jamie at the start of a Storm of Swords-like figure. He's like jaded and he sees lies around every corner. And Brienne's story feels a lot like trying to find like an answer, a different answer to the problem or this question that's posed. Uh, something that's more of like kind of this in-between or this mediation between the Nevet of being really into the songs versus like the pure distrust and cynicism of those who find life falls short of the songs. Like there doesn't need to be a dichotomy between like the Creighton philosophy and the Illifer one. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that's interesting. I didn't... Uh... I didn't think about them like that, but I kind of love, I I thought about them a little differently and I'm going to talk about it later on and come back to this because I have some thoughts, but I I think (laughs) I want to hear a couple other things first, but I didn't think of them as these separate things of like him as an idea of knighthood. I I saw it more as Creighton as kind of Jamie and the sarcastic assholeness that he sometimes does and Illifer, I I saw a little bit more as the Cleos Frey of this oh interesting Mm -hmm. but that's a different trio we'll come back to and for now brienne remembers them actually she does remember thinking of jamie who had just lost his hand and cleos who you know had just lost his life and she tells them that these guys their steeds they can't keep up with her steed which it's true she's not being dishonest and she's just rich creighton <laughs> she's like i'm sorry i'm just mad fucking rich right now Very for my devoted. sugar daddy jamie <laughs> lannister didn't even have to fuck him amen uh, <laughs> creighton starts name dropping all of like his great deeds and ransoms on the blackwater and illifer's like uh, she doesn't need you dude and brienne's like what do you mean and he's like well look at your shield you carry a Lostin shield, and it's the one Jamie had taken from the armory at Harrenhal. He calls it a liar's shield, says that she has no right to it. His grandfather's grandfather helped kill the last of the Lostins. She tries to explain she lost her own shield, and Creighton says, A true knight is the only shield a maiden needs, and Brienne's like, I am a true knight. What aren't you getting about that? <laughs> exactly, I only need me. Real eyes recognize real lies. <laughs> oh my god. Illifer ignores him, though, and says, A barefoot man looks for a boot, a chilly man a cloak, but who would cloak themselves in shame? Lord Lucas bore that bat, the pander, and Manfred of the Blackhood, his son. Why wear such arms, I ask myself, unless your own sin is fouler still and fresher? And then, he says, for that... You freakish woman who hides her true colors, I name you the Maid of Tarth, who opened Renly's throat. It feels like dun, we dun. need a... <laughs> it feels like we need a law and order. Dun, dun, right, here. <laughs> uh, right, or like the fucking objection. Uh, but what is there to object to? I mean, she is, right? Um, not, not the other part. Uh, the murder part, maybe. Not, I have objections. Not that murder. Other murders, maybe. <laughs> I... I kind of love the way that Illifer turns this around and like identifies and like is like I name you the maid of Charth kind of thing, and he doesn't do it using Brienne's name per se, right? He her size and the quality of her armor, and I guess how nice her horses act as signifiers. They're symbols that add to the narrative of like who she might be, and I mean like why not, right? Considering that. By the class of these hedge knights, Brienne herself has woven these narratives about them without even knowing them. She's decided that they're one step away from dishonor or thieves. They're, like, pretty decent. Uh, but together with the that symbol of shame, 
the the Lost in Shield and Illifer recognizing it all, while Brienne actually doesn't recognize it despite her education. It, it feels kind of like an inversion or, or of the scene where Sansa names Barristan and Renly. He's like, I name you Barristan the Bull, I name you Renly, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of plays on our assumptions of class and even Brienne's that Illifer is the one who recognizes this, this house because... I mean, Brienne's like, I don't recognize their shields at all. Like, I don't know them. And using all of these symbols, Illifer then summons an identity of Brienne that is also laden with a narrative. It's a false one, uh, as we know, because we were there in Catelyn's chapters when it happened. But again, he doesn't use her name. He bestows her a title that comes with his character and story, the Maid of Tarth. And there's also something about it, very much so, in the the history of his grandfather and so on fighting against this. And what he's referencing is, of course, the Blackfire Rebellions. That's what he's referencing here. We learn in the Duncan Egg stories, we learn that of Danielle Lothston, of course, shows up during the Mystery Night. And we also learn... In The Sworn Sword, Manfred Lothston had proved true instead of treacherous during the first Blackfire Rebellion. So not only did they then support the Blackfires, but then betrayed them. Betrayal. Exactly. <laughs> first of all that. Second of all, on top of that, we've seen a lot of betrayal in this book lately, right? There's been a lot of houses betraying houses, betraying houses, going back on your word. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not only that you're a treacherous bitch because you supported the wrong king, but you're also a treacherous fucking bitch because then you killed that king and you broke your vows and then you supported another king and now you're supporting another king. And I get why Stoneheart zombie ass isn't into it. You know, she's like, I don't know if I can trust you. It does Brienne. look bad. I don't know. It doesn't look great on paper, right? Like your resume, three months at each job, girl, we gotta talk. Uh, But there's something deeper, too, going on in that rich history. There's something that feels really prominent in that it's a Lothston shield, right? Indicating kind of Riverlands heritage and loyalty. And Brienne may not have thought that, but Lothstons, of course, had Harrenhal way back in the day. One of the, the many houses to have had, loved, lost Harrenhal. And Danielle Lothston right now is kind of a stand-in in this for Lady Stoneheart, right? Turning to the dark arts and quote-unquote going mad, kind of representing Lady Cat in the story. And you even have from The World of Ice and Fire, Their line was ended in madness and chaos when Lady Danielle Lothston turned to the black arts during the reign of King Magar I. Uh, Houth Lothston and Brienne evoking those arms doesn't really help when it comes to that Blackfire Rebellion for her case. But I do love, in the background, on top of that, that like it's another extinguished house of the Riverlands, not unlike the most recent king of the Riverlands in the north, that, you know, quote-unquote everyone's gone or dead or whatever, he or she is looking for the last of them. And... What's interesting is House Went just got kind of rushed out of the Riverlands, to our knowledge, unless they were Kettle Blacks. And there's a big theory earlier on when we saw the Septon that Shiloh brought up. We also saw an old woman in a horse litter with mounted guards. And a lot of people have theorized, what if that's Lady Shella Went, that she was just chilling, going by out there? Not a lot of just singular ladies on the road with mounted guards that you see. Mm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. No way to know, but thought it was fun. I wonder where she went. 
flapped off with her big black black wings, right? Yeah. Just like Sansa and her big black bat wings. Like that family that lost thinned Heron Hall. All. <laughs> the war. <laughs> well, Brienne responds that everything that they've heard about her, that is a lie. She had loved Renly since the first time he visited Tarth during his lord's progress to mark his coming of age, but she doesn't tell him all that. You don't go out there just spilling all your shit to strangers. Some people do, but... Selwyn had welcomed him with a feast and commanded her to attend. She had been Sansa's age, more afraid of snickers than swords. She had begged her father not to make her attend, worried they would know about the rose and then they would laugh at her, but Renly shows her every courtesy. He's like, I don't care about the bachelor. And later the other men followed <laughs> suit at the dance. And here we get another romance thing, so we just, like, add to the list of romance stuff for Brienne, which is her pining after Renly, which matches up with courtly love traditions in the medieval romances, which usually involves the knight pining after an already married woman. In Brienne's case, this translates to a man who's inaccessible because, well, he's gay, and then he's dead. In lots of the romances, the lady in question ends up not being quite as inaccessible as she's supposed to be, and that's how we end up with, like, Lancelot and Guinevere, but Brienne's love interest is completely unavailable. That's such a great call-out in regards to the elements of the, uh, of a chivalric romance in a Brienne's story, and it kind of persists, right? Because the unavailability aspect of that you know, that courtly love tradition you were talking about continues with Jamie, who is also mm -hmm. considered unavailable. Besides the part where he's going through a breakup, where they're just kind <laughs> of ghosting each other because they never again define the relationship. He's also unavailable <laughs> because he's a Kingsguard, which is mm -hmm. peak oh, yeah. every everyone knows not supposed to fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Brianna especially knows. Yes. And that's like part of it, I mean, because if she chooses people to devote herself to that are completely unavailable in one way or another or another in either of those cases, mm -hmm. uh, then she never has to be vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. She can, as we said, she can armor herself. You know, she doesn't have to actually face it until her zombie mom, her <laughs> oath-keeping zombie adoptive mom, Kat, comes back and makes her face the noose music. This is the worst way to deal with your romantic feelings. <laughs> Lead him to his death. What? Truly, I hope she fucks him in the woods. You know, she, that, I hope they just run away and they at least fuck it out of your system. Because I get it. You know, I used to only date emotionally unavailable men too. So I get it, Brienne. I get it. <laughs> well, Brienne while self-sabotaging, had only wanted to serve and protect Renly for the kindness he showed her, but instead, she feels like she failed him. She thinks to defend herself against the allegations, but she knows they won't understand. She says she did not harm him and swears by her sword, but Illifer and Creighton are like, only a knight can swear by that. Oh. Fuck you, fuck you, yeah. fuck you. She must swear it by the seven. They're not even real. So, like... <laughs> At least this sword is literally real in fucking front of us. God, Jesus. <laughs> she believes in that sword a lot. 
but instead she has to go to each of the seven and go, I did bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh my God. Oh, Mark. Like that's, oh. that's the scene. But it also is very God. much analogous because Tommy Wiseau did not hit her. He did not. Um, <laughs> it's a parallel. I, Jesus. <laughs> I will say there's something really special later that we'll get to when she pulls her sword sword out, right? Like, this is not that sword, and it's very obvious, and would swearing on this sword really mean that much to her? You know, because later when she opens up her sword from its wrap and holds it in her hands, it's like the real sword. That's the real god of her life right there. <laughs> She's like, this symbolizes Jamie's dick. It's important. <laughs> oh my god, it does. Uh, uh. <laughs> After she swears it by each of the seven, Creighton says that she swears well for a maid. And Illifer relents to this, putting his dagger away and saying that if she, if she lied, the gods will sort her out. Jesus. So he gives her the first watch of camp and she paces, listening to the fire. She doesn't know these men, but she can't bring herself to leave them undefended. It's an easy watch with little action. And when Illifer wakes to relieve her, Brienne lays on the ground, swearing to herself not to sleep. Even in Renly's camp, the risk of rape was always there. She had learned this beneath the walls of Highgarden, and again with Jamie and the brave companions. I just want to take a quick aside and point out she talks about the cold seeping through the blankets, and I recently went camping for the first time in decades, and that shit's real. It <laughs> so sucks. Yeah. It's so cold. It's awful. I thought I was going to be like, this is great. Wilderness outdoors, and I was like, I hate this. No. I'm so cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cold. I want to call out how important it is that Rianne highlighted that the risk of rape was still there in Renly's camp because sexual violence and rape as a weapon of war, it, it's been brought up obviously in previous books before Rianne's chapter because, you know, the first three books, everyone's all like, it's grimdark, but, and that's part of it. And, anyways. It seems a lot more centered in this chapter. And obviously we've seen an escalation of that sexual violence and rape being used as a weapon of war and being used to humiliate and therefore assert power over not just women's bodies, but over men using that sexual violence to emasculate the men who for failing to protect women. And we see reference to the roads all around being unsafe now, along with this discussion of broken men. It does get a brief mention in this chapter. And a lot of that discussion about broken men, even in the Septon Maribel chapter, focuses so much about how war affects men and the concept of them being outlaws. And yes, this is important, but I also begrudge that so little it focuses on the brokenness and anger and trauma of these men when it gets redirected, especially when they feel that power has been stolen from them. And that's how you get that increase in sexual violence from these broken men seeking to reassert their power, and they do it using harmful patriarchal ways. They take it out on women and their bodies. They redirect it to those who are weaker than them. And it isn't only along the road, and it isn't only among the soldiers, because that stress and the financial strain of war lead to more stress in the household, which leads to abuse and sexual violence against women, not just on the roads, but also inside the home, where men take their frustration out on women in extremist patriarchal societies, which, I mean, that's what Westeros is. But back to Renly's camp, the war had not escalated as much yet when Brienne was there, and it also shows more of that pervasive uh, 
harmful patriarchy. It shows the cracks in the supposed code of Renly's, like, shiny camp. They were supposed to be, like, the knights from the songs. They fancied themselves as these really, like, honorable heroes. But as Catelyn points out, they were knights of summer, and they couldn't abide that a woman would be there to break the veneer of who they're supposed to be. Our good friend Lo, Lo the Lynx, we've referred to them a lot. We're gonna refer to them even more throughout this character reread. Lo speaks in their essay about Brienne and Arya as gender outlaws and how gender nonconformity is punished by reinforcing heteronormativity, and that's the case, right, in terms of this risk of rape. And Renly's camp, of course, is so entrenched in adhering to these roles of what they think are the shoulds of Westerosi society, especially Andal traditions, which makes it exactly the sort of place where this sort of reinforcement, this weaponization of heteronormativity, which is often like weaponized all the fucking time anyway, um, would happen. But it does make me wonder, um, you know, considering we never got the POVs of the Mormont women in Rob's camp, I wonder if they also felt the same risks. Uh, we're sold that the Starks are better, they're more egalitarian, but I actually imagine that it would be a risk for them as well. Yeah, I'm sure it is, because war is war, and I mean, we only got a look at the top of the camp that was always being paid attention to, you know, that yeah. someone was always there mm -hmm. that could be held accountable during. I mean, we didn't see, you know, what went on between the 10,000 men that were over at the Bastard Feast. You know what I yeah. mean? We didn't see how camp followers were treated because we weren't there. And I mean, to an extent, we start to see that when you get some of the outer phrase, right? Mm -hmm. Like Ryman uh, with bringing a camp follower to all these normal events and we see some of that so you wonder past that what's happening you know men with power that are already that's obviously different but i'm saying past that point you don't see past that so if you see at the top people that are just you know using their power which is fine if the other person is willing and happy to do so as well or looking to follow a camp on it but you also don't see the men at the bottom with the ten thousand men on the other side of the river but what we do see is they lay with lions. Yeah. Yeah. And we do see the perspective yeah. of when we see Rob's camp, we mostly see in terms of like the class and power system. Because um, I was wondering, you know, would the Mormont <clears throat> women who like Brienne are, are perhaps seen as trespassing when it comes to the gender roles of being a warrior? And we know that like the North is more accepting of it, but we only really see the Northern highborns, the Northern nobility, and their power is not threatened. So if anything, the risks or the danger that the Mormon women might face are maybe perhaps from those who don't, who feel that they need to reassert their power and their place in the structure versus the Mormon women who not only get to have class and, and wealth and land, but also then mm -hmm. get to enter into this male sphere. And they wouldn't mm -hmm. face that same, I think, hostility from those who already have power. And Kat doesn't talk to, to Lowborns, really. <laughs> sure. I do yeah. also just want to put out that, like, I don't think the North is that much more accepting of it. I think the Mormonts are. And that's yeah. not a necessity, oh, as we've seen. Because look I at how agree. Alice Karstark was treated as a highborn woman in her own home, being chased after by her uncles so they could sell her hymen off to whoever said, hey... You know, or whoever of themselves got the claim from it. And, I mean, Ned's dad would not have let Lyanna have a sword. Like, that that's something that he yeah. said. Like, letting Arya have that sword, and he literally says, I should have it taken away. 
uh, but he doesn't. And that's a big change for the head honcho of the North to make, in my opinion. And I mean, I'm yeah. not saying, yeah. like, yay, not gender rights, but I am <laughs> saying, like, that's a big, that shows you where the North is. And when we get the look into John's POV and perspective and seeing all of the women of the free folk that are just somewhat integrated, but also still face, you know, sexual harassment from camp on a normal mm-hmm. everyday Absolutely. level. I just think that that's closer to it. That's closer to what we could see with the Mormonts in their own homes when they're comfortable. But I wouldn't imagine that it was easy for the Mormonts. I mean, Catalin herself looks at Daisy and thinks it's kind of strange that the girl wants to wear male, but okay. She wears it fine. You know, she fits in semi-normally, so I'll let it be. Uh, But she thinks it in her own kind of way of just what she's used to. So imagine how the men are thinking. Yeah. Especially of a pretty girl. You know, a girl that looks willowy and pretty when she's in a dress versus being in male and she's not really freakishly large. Or... Yeah. Yeah. And we see them perform hyper-masculinity throughout anyway, too. Not not the Mormont women, the men. So yeah. I'm sure yeah. it was. Yeah. They probably made some, like, shitty comments to her constantly and she's like, I don't... The other side of yeah. that is, like, you have mage, right? Like, staring yeah. them down. Like, you want to fuck... I'll eat your fucking face off. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. there was a... Mage probably wouldn't stand for that. I think there was a risk against mage, too. I'm just saying for, for both yeah. of them. For all of them. And I, whoever else they brought, too. I mean, that's part of being in the king's protection, though. Right? Like, being as honored guard, honored advisors to the king. Yeah. I mean, that's part of that I mean, protection. I mean, theoretically honored, too. But look at that. So, it's always a risk. Yeah. Um, People say Honor's a horse. Yes, so Brienne, terribly cold like Eliana was when she went camping. (laughs) Wonders if Sansa Stark is cold right now, too. Probably. Elevation's a bitch. (laughs) Lady Catelyn said Sansa was a gentle soul who loved lemon cakes, silken gowns, and songs of chivalry. Yet the girl had seen her father's head lopped off and been forced to marry one of his killers afterward. If half the tales were true, the dwarf was the cruelest Lannister of all. Okay. If she did poison King Joffrey, the imp surely forced her hand. Brienne learned Sansa was alone and friendless after she had hunted down one of her maids, Brella. There had been little warmth between the dwarf and Sansa, she discovered. Brienne sleeps very briefly, and she wakes cold but unmolested. The hedge knights are out cutting up squirrels for breakfast and relieving themselves on trees. Hedge knights, she thought. Old and vain and plump and nearsighted, yet decent men for all that. It cheered her to know there were still decent men in the world. (laughs) What a mood. (laughs) But also look at how low the bar is. They didn't rape her and steal her stuff so they're good men because the men she's used to dealing with are complete assholes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the Barbie glow, like, that's how she ends up devoted to Renly, right? Because he, like, shows her the bare minimum of kindness by dancing with her. I'm like, I feel like that was expected for royalty, seeing the expectations of Rob at the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. And after that, like, tiny act of human decency, Brienne's like, I'm gonna risk it all. And I, I feel bad. She was so deprived of just, like, any any decency that this mm-hmm. is it. Uh, that sept of hers know. was terrible. Yeah. That septa was the worst. And this is how you lead to having a very slutty couple of years at age 19, in my opinion. (laughs) Uh I'm speaking from experience here, but that's living a life with no self-esteem where someone blinks at you and you think it means they love you. Mm. Um, She's got to watch out because she might have a lot of 
lot of Jamie Lannister's dick in her future. <laughs> She's holding it right now. Oh <laughs> <laughs> it's on her back. <laughs> so they eat roast squirrel, acorn paste, and pickles for breakfast. That's Yum. like a Bran Aria kind of meal going on there. And <laughs> Creighton tells of his deeds on the Blackwater, slaying knights she never heard of. He even praises Illifer's battle behavior, though Illifer says very little. People with names that begin with ill, they be like that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know, she calls him plump. And I'm like, not everyone can be cut like you, Brienne. And <laughs> I obviously I think Illifer is the foil to, to Creighton. Clearly takes no joy in violence and killing, it seems. He's just like, yeah, I don't know, that kind of sucked. And I, again, I'm kind of just like, damn, Brienne, just because you don't recognize, like, Creighton and Illifer, and they don't brush shoulders with royalty, it doesn't make them, like, less of knights, especially compared to those in, like, Renly's camp. Like, yeah, they were, like, big names, but I'm like, that's all they were. And, you know, even even how, like, Joffrey, right, was shuffled off the battlefield during the Blackwater, and... Yeah, so you've never heard of Creighton's song, but you know what? Someone wrote a song about him, okay? Just because it's on someone's obscure, like, SoundCloud or mixtape doesn't mean that he's not, like, cool. He was actually out there fighting compared to these highborns who weren't. And just because you've never heard of these knights that, like, he fought, nor of him, and just because the other highborn nobles also don't know about his exploits doesn't mean that, like, other people don't. And I I don't know why. There's just something about the dismissiveness and belittling of, like, what Creighton did at the Blackwater that rose me wrong. I understand that we're supposed to see it as sort of, like, pompous and self-important, but I'm also like, yeah, but that man fought. And survived. Yeah. It was it was bad. Like, it was, mm-hmm. it, it was very a difficult battle. Well, and there's also something of, like, earlier when you were saying how Illifer remembered, you know, hey, my, my fucking grandfather and his grandfather fought against these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a line in the Broken Man speech where he's like, and then the men just all go over, you know, to the other side. And it's easy to feel that way for some of them. But some of them also remember these kind of grievances, right? These family grievances and mm-hmm. what their dads and their families threw away to yeah. give them kind of this better life or give them a chance at a better life and maybe you know, distinguish themselves and maybe get a little bit of land and maybe a tiny scrap of money to pay for this kid you accidentally fucked into your wife or whatever, or some chick. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just like such a different life because Brienne and all of them, they haven't had to think about that. Brienne, Jamie, none of them have had to think about what that would be like. They've never had to enlist in a war, you know, because, because. Yeah, like in the Hedge Knight and so forth, they're like, one of the lords didn't remember Arlen of Pennytree. And it's like, well, that man like fought pretty hard for you. Okay. Yeah, that so, is exactly how it feels. Especially with like that penny granted it's penny less, not a penny tree. Pretty different vibes, but also in some ways a similar spirit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's a very similar feeling though, it is. Like just because you don't know him doesn't mean it's not real. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was their entire life. It might not seem like a lot to some people, but it was their entire life. Mm-hmm. Man. Do you think war's bad? Is that... <laughs> Do you Subtext? think he's trying to say something? What does he say? <laughs> this might just be how he deals with trauma, because the like you were saying, the Blackwater was really bad. And if he gets through all of that by going, I was there and it was great and I killed people and it was awesome. And did you hear my song? Yay. 
let him have his thing, man. <laughs> I know. And, like, it was clearly bad because if Illifer was there and, like, doesn't want to speak about it. Yeah. Like, apparently it was traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because, to be fair, I don't know, it's not, it is a little belittling, but at some point here that we'll get to, as they go along, so, to the journey, the men flank her, protecting her kind of like she's a great lady, not <laughs> unlike the woman that had the litter that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though she's absolutely like 80 times taller than them <laughs> and better armed. Literal belittling. She's very big. <laughs> it's not her fault, okay? Literally This belittling. is how I feel, Eliana. Yeah. Chloe belittles Every day. me all the time. <laughs> yeah, we barely have legs to stand on, so how is that my fault? Uh Brienne asks them if they had seen anyone during the watches, but they're like, no, we didn't see not Sansa Stark. Just a couple farm boys or two. One of them's pod. (laughs) Maybe even some small but rough bandits, but their steel warded them all off, Creighton boasts. And he says, yes, they feared the great Creighton, and Brienne has to hide her (laughs) smile. So that's sweet. It was good to have companions, she thought, and Creighton doesn't notice her mirth as she's too busy telling his epic tales of the battle with the Knight of the Red Chicken. I meant to look this up. Do we know who the Knight of the Red Chicken is? I just, I meant to and I forgot. I was thinking about it too. And I was wondering if it was like, I I think the Bastard of Hurston is someone that people have like thought maybe it could be, which is a, I think it's like a Baratheon sworn house, a noble house from the Stormlands. Yellow roosters head on red, maybe. Uh, I bet Micah would know. Yeah, well, that's it, though. I think that's, like, maybe a reversal of the Hurston arms, but I don't think... It's like that griffin, right, in the very first book, that blue-silver griffin our friend Warren always asks us about. (laughs) And I never know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That could be a Coddington bastard house or, like, branch house, too. Yeah, it does sound like one, especially if they're... I mean, that that could make sense, too, if they're uh, from the Stormlands. Mm Mm-hmm. Sworn to either Renly or Stannis. Yeah. Some bastard but, from that house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like they might have been on the side of the Lannisters slash Tyrells, Creighton, I mean, so. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, coming I mean, up with Stannis's. Maybe. I and, don't know. You know, it's interesting because, again, there's that focus on the heraldry, right? That's just going to keep plugging through this chapter as we get to mm-hmm. the Mad Mouse. I love that focus on the shields and the heraldry that keeps coming up of what people's sigils were, even if they're very vague sigils that don't actually matter in the scheme of things. I do love this chapter while paralleling Jamie one in A Storm of Swords. Uh, I do think Creighton and Illifer are very much Cleos and Jamie, and I know earlier Eliana had split it the other way. I thought Creighton bragging kind of of his feats is kind of like cocky Jamie. You know, when she first meets him, and he's kind of cocky asshole still before he gets all the joy of life, you know, chopped off of him. And <laughs> Creighton bragging reminded her of that. But Illifer is kind of like the backstory of the land, which is kind of what Cleos hmm. was doing the entire ride, right? Like Cleos provided this pulsing heartbeat of information and exposition as we went on that journey. And Illifer kind of feels like that. Um, and I also think that Jamie was kind of kind of a little more of a silent asshole, so I can see the Illifer comparison in that, that like he would just quip witticisms once in a while, but otherwise it was all in his head that we were reading of how, no, they're incorrect, I'm right. Here Brienne's doing that, 
very mm. often. She's pulling the Jamie move. She's withholding these thoughts she has on their legitimacy and their ability to fight and their accomplishments, as well as constantly being judged for who she is, who her loyalties lie with, as she's been here with her lost in shield and her half Tarth, half Lannister, one quarter Stark loyalties. <laughs> Add that one up. Something doesn't work. <laughs> it, it's interesting because she's now Jamie. She is straight up a book later. Now she is Jamie on the road thinking, oh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And accused of regicide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair to her, I also often don't tell men what I'm really thinking. So, Yeah. You don't even tell me what you're thinking. <laughs> I'm so little. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll be little then. <laughs> So by midday, they hear voices raised in prayer through the trees. People are asking the warrior for protection, the crone for light. They rein up their horses, hearing the sound come closer, and the chanting filled the woods like pious thunder. I love that line so much. Is that not such a great pious thunder? I Mm -hmm. I wanted to go see if he had done Mm -hmm. anything else with that. This is the only time he uses that. Hmm. Pious thunder. (laughs) Ahead, begging brothers appear, leading threescore ragged men, women, children, cows, sheep, a two-wheeled wain of gray, piled high with skulls and bits of bone. The begging brothers greet them, saying the mother loves them. A big man introduces them as poor fellows, shirtless with a carved seven-pointed star in his chest. Andal warriors had carved such stars in their flesh when first they crossed the narrow sea to overwhelm the kingdoms of the first men. That's not ominous at all. Ooh, that's a little, uh, is this a cult? This feels like a cult. Is this this foreshadowing? Is this what they're calling They do have the financial Uh, exploitation part. Topical humor. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it feels like it. I just don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. You know, like if I chose to carve my skin, that'd be one thing. I don't know about carving your logo in my chest. That's a permanent (laughs) billboard, my friend. Yeah. Permanent yeah. billboard. I don't think anyone like really said they had to do it too. They were just like, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> you know, maybe we should call David and Dan on this one. <laughs> I'm curious because they, they show it, you know, mm-hmm. they showed us actually up close. Yeah, they did. God, poor Loris Tyrell slash Lancel. I don't know who those people were anymore. Were they real characters? They all kind of blurred together. (laughs) A tall woman says that they are all marching to bring these bones to the Blessed Baylor and seek the king's protection. They urge the knights to join them, that Westeros needs their sword. The knights counter, offering their protection for coin. And the Septon says, Sparrows need no gold, explaining the sparrow is the humblest of birds, like they are of men. The Septon had a lean, sharp face and a short beard, grizzled gray and brown. His thin hair was pulled back and knotted behind his head, and his feet were bare and black, gnarled and hard as tree roots. They explained their bones are the bones of holy men that were murdered for their faith, starved, tortured, and that their people are suffering. Maidens and mothers were being raped by godless men and demon worshippers, even silent sisters. If they loved the Seven, they would come to the city with them. Illifer responds he does love the Seven, but he also loves to eat and live, and they are heading to Duskendale. Same. (laughs) A begging brother spits at them, and the big man with the starry boobs says they are false knights. (laughs) But the barefoot Septon says, 
Don't judge them, for that is the father's role. Let them pass in peace. I kept thinking of them, first of all, I imagine, and this is painful, they had, like, carved each of the stars of the seven, like, around their nipples, and that sounds painful. The other image that came to mind was, uh, they had, like, pasties. They had little, like, shiny iridescent pasties. And that's what they were wearing. Weird enough, I thought the former. I was mm. thinking the former, weirdly <laughs> enough. It seems, I mean, I guess maybe it's, like, getting a piercing there or something. No, no. <laughs> Meanwhile, my brain's on star-bellied sneeches. Ah, <laughs> what else is in the teaches of peaches? Oh, oh, from Doctor Seuss. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that could be the sparrow. What if that's the sparrow? <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. These these sparrows are not very humble though, because <laughs> they're all like, "You suck for not joining us." And uh, the people who pass Brienne and company, they kind of remind me a little bit of, like, Varys' riddle of, like, all right, so who does the soldier follow? The king, the septon, or the rich man? And obviously Brienne's already left King's Landing and has cho- decided, like, I'm not really following any kings. I did that once, and he died, and it was big sad. Um, she's, like, kind of following orders from the crown. She does have, like, that that paper from Tommen. But in a way, she's also kind of searching for a different loyalty. So it's it, it's like a weird gray area. I'm I'm gonna say she's not really following a king at the moment, um, though the crown does lend her quest legitimacy. She does refuse the septon, so she mm. refuses the holy men, right, and the call from religion at the moment. And she's also refusing the rich man, the merchant later. So just interesting that something else is mm. driving Brienne. None of the things in Varys' riddle. Yeah, even when she goes to the aisle, the quiet aisle. Yeah, she's looking for something. Something deep within, <laughs> which is Jamie's. Anyways, no, it's the quest. All right, it's the knight errant quest. <laughs> oh, it's the knight errant quest, baby. <laughs> She's looking for a knight to make some errants. She's running. I thought she mentioned that she's running errands for a night. Oh, I was playing on. What Isn't you were that what this saying. is? I, no, I was I playing that. on that of like one night in Jamie, but of. Uh, Pegging. I mean, it could be both. <laughs> what did I get he here? would like it. I think so. As long as she went slow and like was gentle with him, and she like <laughs> you know made sure there was. I mean, she would. Lo- he he'd be into it. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, there's a G spot. So, so- what, what's your analysis <laughs> on this? <laughs> I can see Jamie as a bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, yeah. look at his whole life. <laughs> I mean, look where he is right now. You're gonna tell me that man's a top just because we've seen it once? I mean. Uh, no Brienne brings up to the faith which this is just the most fucking faith answer I've ever heard in my life she's like have you seen a maid 13 auburn blue eyes you know the whole drill and they're like oh no no and he goes all the mother's children are fair to look upon may the maiden watch over this poor girl and you as well I think which first of all Brienne's beautiful. That's what he just said. You guys heard it, right? He just God said. God said so. <laughs> God said so. God said Brienne's beautiful. I can't change the facts. <laughs> but he also said thoughts and prayers. <laughs> he also straight up was like, ooh, all children are loved by Jesus. Thoughts and prayers, though. Thoughts and prayers for this girl and for you. Thoughts and prayers. We must move along. Yeah, he fucking said uh. all children matter to Brienne. And we're like, hmm. <laughs> 
That's hot. Brienne's like, oh, that's kind of fucked up. This is the first conflict for me. My boyfriend says all children don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> My boyfriend says no children matter. James wow, says fuck cor- them kids. <laughs> Actually. Ooh, a corruption kink. Um, <laughs> they pull their way away. And the knights wait for them to pass on to Rosby. The chanting returns, fading out as they leave. Sir Creighton scratches his ass and wonders aloud what sort of man would slay a holy septon. Brienne thinks she knows the sort. The brave companions, for example, had just strung up a septon near Maidenpool when they had been with them, using the corpse for archery practice. She wonders if those bones just went by her. Reminds me a bit of Ned's bones, eh? Mm-hmm. Oh. Sir Creighton is meanwhile in shock that even Silent Sisters are getting assaulted, saying a man would need to be a fool. The Silent Sisters are the strangers' wives, their female parts cold as ice. Which is another reminder that the social order and the social bonds are seriously breaking down. Uh, the Red Wedding was the biggest sign of it, but it's been breaking down since Robert's Rebellion kind of sped up with Ned's arrest, and it's been going really downhill ever mm. since. We're at the point where even those supposed to be completely untouchable are being harassed and murdered and raped. Mm-hmm. People are losing faith. And some of them are finding it, but through cults. Um <laughs> it's also telling that like the rationale that Creighton gives to not rate the Silent Sisters, like it's not based on their humanity or anything moral. Um, there's like this implied shock, like right you said, of that disintegrating like mm-hmm. social bonds. But he's like, oh, you shouldn't assault the Silent Sisters because of who they belong to. That they're the strangers' wives, and though the stranger is supposed to be like genderless or non-binary. It's like the stranger is often used with he, him pronouns or referred to as a man despite. And then mm-hmm. also points out, oh, the silent sisters shouldn't be raped because they have unsatisfying genitals. And I'm like, this would actually, and they're saying it would rather detract as opposed to enhance a man's pleasure. So they're saying all these things rather than like, it is just wrong to rape the silent sisters. I'm like, I feel like that was, that was it. You could have stopped there. Mm-hmm. So gross. Even to that, like, it's even like, why would a man want to? No man would want to feel that, like, completely not understanding that the point of assault is power, usually. <laughs> you know, not yeah. just because want, take. Um, yeah. Well, on a very fundamental level, want, take. But that's all, you know, that's in our genetic code. Yeah, that's that's kind of the, the, the fucked up part for sure. And also that he, like, afterwards... <laughs> He immediately is like, oh, sorry. And he assumes like her genitals are also ice because of the way that she acts is kind of how he relates it. He does kind of relate this to her like, oh, I'm sorry. Are you offended? You're kind of a bitch with an icy cunt, too. (laughs) Like, that's pretty much what he apologizes for immediately assuming she's offended. Though I will give him at least he realized his he was being inappropriate and his opinions are bad. So. Brienne spurs her horse along. She's like, all right, I'm just going to trot off. This is fun for me. (laughs) Three hours later, they come upon a struggling party with their own hedge knight heading to Duskendale. A merchant riding a mare with six servants pulls his cart behind them. Although they're struggling, they still draw their weaponry immediately when this trio appears. The merchant apologizes for being so defensive and says he only has the good Sir Shadrich to defend him. He asks who they are, and Creighton and Illifer introduce themselves. 
The merchant, however, looks at Brienne as like, oh, honey, why are you out here in this outfit and not at home? And she's like, I'm searching for my sister. The merchant says he's seen roads full of drunk fools and despoiled maidens, and that portly knight may have been with her sister, but he hasn't seen any fat knights that it would contradict their vows when so many lack for food. Though Sir Creighton here has not hungered, says the merchant. Of course, Sir Creighton's like, I have big bones. Which, like, yeah, rude. Mm-hmm. And everyone just keeps assuming that Sansa would have been raped by now. Which is, again, is speaking to the breakdown of society. That the idea that a girl, even when accompanied, as Brienne keeps saying that she might be, might not, might not have been assaulted within five minutes is absolutely unthinkable for all these men. Yeah, it's it's sad. It's sad. For what it's worth, she kind of is assaulted by this point. Yeah. Like, she's not like she hasn't been like penetratively <laughs> raped, but she has been sexually. Ass- yeah, she has been sexually assaulted quite a few times by this point. Yeah, yeah. The inver- the merchant invites them to ride with them. They're like, three blades are better than one. And Brienne holds her tongue. She's like, it's four blades. I'm very strong, but... I'm standing right here. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Literally could pop that watermelon with her thighs. (laughs) Maybe he was talking about... Y'all know. (laughs) Shadrick agrees, though. He's a fox-faced man with a sharp nose and a shock of orange hair. No more than 5'2", and he's cocky AF. I love Shadrick. He's gonna be so much trouble later. I know. And if only she had gone with him, right? It almost is like it almost reads like a Catalan X Tyrion 2.0 because he's such a saucy little motherfucker mm-hmm. and he's just like quipping every few seconds at her and he's smarter than he should be <laughs> and you know he's up to shit and she's very distrustful of his nature but she's like, I know he's up to shit. <laughs> if only she had followed him. If yeah. only. That would have made for a good detective story, too. That happens sometimes in detective stories, but... It's yeah. like if you cut the bullshit of, like, yeah. Nimble Dick and all the stuff in between, and then you just took, like, Heil Hunt, shrunk him down about four inches, <laughs> boom. Yeah. But she didn't want to do, like, the dive bar detective noir story. She had to go be in a chivalric romance. God. <laughs> yep. <laughs> She's a hero, goddammit. <laughs> she is a hero. Well, Shadrick says he does not fear this group, and off they all go. During the journey, he eyes Brienne like a piece of meat, calling her a strapping healthy wench. And she says, uh, yeah, a giant compared to some. And he laughs, saying he's big enough where it counts. You're not Jamie, so stop trying to be Jamie, Shadrick. Or Torment, who's also renowned for being big where it counts. (laughs) (sighs) He... Introduces himself fully then as Sir Shadrick of the Shady Glen. Some call him the Mad Mouse. His shield has a white mouse with fierce red eyes on bendy brown and blue for the lands he roamed, rivers he crossed, and of course himself, the Mad Mouse, who seeks out battle and enemies, saving his valor for the battlefield. Or for the tourney field, as we're probably going to see next book, right? He's going to definitely be in the winged knight tourney. We will see him come back. Next book when? 
<laughs> under your chair right now. Look under your chair, everyone. I'm on my own night errant oh quest for the winds of winter. <laughs> um, there's something really cool about his shield in that there's like an obvious northern and riverland connection going on here. You see the brown and blue for the lands he roams, the rivers he crosses, but a white mouse with red eyes. Who does that sound like? Ghost. Mm. Oh. Uh, very much. You see a little north, but also a little bit of that riverland brown and blue in there. And there's something else interesting happening in this run of three chapters that in Cersei's chapter, the front of the Cersei chapter right before this, it starts with Cersei looking down at the people who are small as mice. And Sam, in the next chapter, opens his chapter. Something very cutting, in my opinion, because it kind of feels like a pay attention hint. Sam was reading about the others when he saw the mouse. His eyes were red and raw. Mm. So a fun little motif running its way through these three books. Some Chapters. Think whatever think being they a mouse makes you a messiah, so. Uh, Mrs. Sir Shadrich? Sir Shadib? This <laughs> <laughs> is... Shadrach Kalud. This is a... This is a all culturally relevant now. I'm hip. House of the Shady Glen. Rise. <laughs> so... He says, you know what, Yumi, Brienne, I think we share the same quest because I too am hunting for a 13-year-old blue-eyed auburn hair girl. Her name is Sansa Stark. And Brienne's like, I don't know her. <laughs> He's like, are you sure? Are you her, sure? Her, her whomst there is just so, like, bad. It's She's such a bad liar. <laughs> she's like, who? <laughs> He's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I imagine his look when he looks over is like, are you sure? He's <laughs> like, really? This is the first time. It's like been like two weeks, right? On the own. And she's just like, this is, it's been two motherfucking weeks. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's a good wake up call. At least she got it now. You know, like, mm-hmm. Brienne, you are not being subtle. <laughs> that doesn't stop her though. He seeks Sansa out of love. He says his love for gold. And Lord Varys is offering a plump bag of gold for her. He offers to split the coin if she helps him find the child and the knight or fool that he knows that she seeks too. And he tells her that Sansa disappeared the same time as a certain fool, formerly of Duskendale. And he hopes that Brienne's sister isn't mistaken for (laughs) Sansa Stark. And then he trots off. (laughs) Mic drops. God, how frustrating is that? She's like, God damn it! Now I'd start all over. Uh, Also, copy his homework. I love that he's like, oh, and that's why you're going to Duskendale, right? Like he's just like, hmm, beginner's (laughs) shit. Walks away. She thinks even Jamie Lannister had seldom made Brienne feel such a fool. You were not the only hunter in the woods. The woman Brella had told her Joffrey had stripped Sir Dantos of his spurs, but Sansa had begged Joffrey for his life. He helped her flee, Brienne decided when she heard the tale, kind of. Find Sir Dantos and I will find Sansa. Uh, a long way to look in that. Oh my god. <laughs> long way to look in that ocean. Jesus Christ. Uh, Brienne realizes others, maybe even less savory than this one, would come to that conclusion. She hopes Dantos hit her well, but not too well, because how would she find them? 
right? Like, her hair isn't even auburn anymore. Now it's burnt auburn. Auburnt. Exactly. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> they stay at the old stone bridge, an inn that Creighton was very familiar with. Brienne offers to pay, for Illifer has no money. Jamie had sent her with two very fat purses, one with silver stags and copper stars, and a smaller one with gold dragons, and of course, her paper shield from Tommen. Signed in his adorable little boy handwriting. No. Yes. <laughs> Poor I do Tommen. love it. Oh. <laughs> Poor boy. That kid's gonna die. Yeah. So Hibbled and his men are happy to stop as well, and they dismount at the stables. She loosens her saddle, and a boy comes out the stable door saying, Let me do that, sir! And Brienne says, I'm no sir, but you may take the horse, ordering him to tend to their mare. And it's interesting how this don't call me sir kind of aligns Brienne mm. with Sandor, in a way. Though hers is because she hasn't been, and for now can't be, offered the title, and his is because he doesn't want it. They're opposite ends of this spectrum. She sees the honor and the justice, and he sees the hypocrisy and the murder. Mm, love that. Love that. So the boy apologizes, calling her milady, and Brienne calls it a common mistake. I love that line so much. It's a common mistake. She, she heads in, <laughs> She heads in inward, her bedroll under one arm, saddlebags on her shoulder, and joins the common room where a roast spits over a fire. Six locals sit at a table, talking and stopping when the strangers enter. This is so much different than her last inexperience. It's only the locals staring at them while they talk. But at the end of the kneeling man, they were almost ambushed, if you recall, from the innkeep. Mm -hmm. He was no innkeep, she hunched gracelessly in the saddle, but seemed to have a sure seat nonetheless. The man took too great an interest in our choice of route, and those woods... Such places are notorious haunts of outlaws. He may have been urging us into a trap. <laughs> Here, there's no trap. In fact, everything's too good, too easy. So easy, she's got to ghost him later. Yeah, but that's because she's learned her lesson. She's like, time to ghost. Yeah, I stopped trusting. Long Aww. ago. <laughs> Brienne can immediately feel their eyes on her, and she feels naked because she knows they're staring at her, not Sir Shadrich. The innkeep offers them beer, the merchant requests rooms, and the innkeep, Nagle says, well, if you have coin. Creighton pulls out his big connections, and he's like, but it's me, Longbow. And Nagle's like, yeah, and you owe me, Nagle, seven stags. <laughs> Brienne pays for two rooms, one for her, one for Creighton and Illifer. The merchant pays for himself in Shadrich and says his serving men will sleep in the stables. Hibbled calls for bread and drippings for his men, and the innkeep invites them to the goat. Ah, roast goat. Uh, Brienne orders goat for her companions. They drink ale, but Brienne drinks goat milk, listening in on the table talk. I am just, like, kind of mad because I feel like the merchant could have afforded goat for all of his men. But that's just... That's it. Not if he wants to stay rich forever. I guess, but... He could use those pennies. You're right. Those coppers, okay? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> The conversation is varied. Hibbled in a local talk about the Kingslayer being crippled, and Creighton says, Chewed off by a direwolf, I hear. One of them monsters come down from the north. Not that's good ever come from the north. Even their gods are queer. And Brienne finds herself going, well, actually, she's been around <laughs> men long enough. Um, Sir Jamie <laughs> lost his hand to a cohoric sellsword. 
And then they're like, okay, fine, whatever. And they bicker about sword fighting, and Brienne's thoughts then wander over to her and Jamie's very sexually charged sword fight, which you can we we covered how it's very sexually charged already before. And also how good Jamie was. There's a line. Jamie has done many wicked things, but the man could fight. His maiming had been monstrously cruel. It was one thing to slay a lion, another to hack his paw off and leave him broken and bewildered. I love that line so much. Absolutely. And of course, she's thinking of him as his sigil. Girl, you got it bad. You got it bad. You got it bad when you're she's on like, the road. If he's a lion, I'm the sun and the stars and the moon. And I'm like, girlfriend. <laughs> the lion sleeps tonight, Brienne. Okay. Not with me. <laughs> I love that the entire time that they fight in that book, in A Storm of Swords, the time when they did fight, he's thinking the exact same thing about her, right? He thinks that she's stronger than he is, and the realization chills him. And he thinks of all these other people that had also been strong. But this was a woman, Jamie thinks. A huge cow of a woman, to be sure, but even... So by rights, she should be the one wearing down. So here she is thinking, Jamie had still been so splendidly glorious as he fought. <laughs> but yet, he was thinking of her glory. Her gloriousness when she was fighting him. Interesting. Interesting <laughs> comparisons, that's all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes love is just trying to kill each other. That's what Mr. and Mrs. Smith is about, right? I've been watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the noise in the common room becomes too much. God, mood. <laughs> and Brienne <laughs> says goodnight. Going to bed. Also mood. Mm -hmm. The ceiling in her room is low, so she must duck to fit with a large bed and a stubby candle. She lights the candle, bars the door, and hangs her sword belt. A plain scabbard, wood wrapped in brown leather, and a planer sword. She bought the sword in King's Landing to replace the blade that the companions had stolen. Renly's sword. I'm interested in whether we see Renly's sword again, or if this is a symbol of how she shifts her allegiance and her interest over to Jamie. Because it seems like getting a specific sword back in the middle of wartime would be impossible, but Arya got needle back. So mm -hmm. clearly George isn't above a little bit of convenience when it comes to especially meaningful weapons. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, the Brave Companions took that, right? So mm -hmm. it could come back up, uh, depending on where, if we ever see any remainder of them. But Or it could be at Harrenhal still, possibly. It could be still at Harrenhal, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Zolo, Togjoth, and Three Toes are on the run. Rorge and Biter get killed in the confrontation with Brienne. And Brienne kills the first three companions, Timmy and Shagwa and Pig, when we get to the Whispers later. Mm -hmm. So... Maybe one of those last three are going to have the sword. Maybe that's part of it, you know, like getting back that other part of her. Yeah, I wonder. Mm. I don't know. Because you're right. I don't like, think Needle, she wants it anymore. Needle comes back. Yeah. And if she doesn't, like, Needle still has, like, symbolic value, right? Mm. Like, narrative value for Arya's, like, character. And, I mean, if we're speaking solely of, like, what it means in terms of the narrative and especially just like relating it to Brienne's story. I mean, as you said, right, it's possible that this is this is mostly what you're saying, symbolizing the shift in allegiance and interest to Jamie. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That that allegiance is so clear too. Is the sword I don't remember. Is the sword Valyrian steel? The the blue sword is just her sword from Renly, but it's her Brienne the blue sword, so it's like the loss of innocence having that mm-hmm. sword taken from her mm-hmm. by the brave companions. In my opinion, like I don't think she's getting it back just because they ripped it from her, but also maybe she'll get it back and she won't fucking want it anymore. Maybe she'll be like fuck that sword. Yeah, fuck that sword. I got a Valyrian steel sword now. <laughs> it's cool. It is cool. It is cool. We're going to talk is. about it. I loved that sword, though. I did love the blue sword and the armor. It, it was much... Uh, in our Catalan run, that was something that really stood out, meeting Brienne again and seeing her beautiful sapphire blue armor. And that's cool just it, set. right? It's like very... It's pure. It's like a very pure, like her and her blue dented armor and her blue sword. It was like very aesthetic for Brienne, but it, I guess it was also who she was. She's no longer a knight of summer. She's about to be a knight of winter. Fell, maybe even. And you need that fire sword. Well, let's talk about the fire sword, right? Um, <laughs> what it looks yes. like. It, it was hidden in her bedroll, which is one way to talk about it. Um, and she takes it out. Gold glimmered yellow in the candlelight and rubies smoldered red. When she slid Oathkeeper from the ornate scabbard, Brienne's breath caught in her throat. That's not the only thing. Black and red, the ripples ran deep within the steel. Valyrian steel, spell forged. It was a sword fit for a hero. When she was small, her nurse had filled her ears with tales of valor regaling her with the noble exploits of Sir Galadin of Morn, Florian the Fool, Prince Aemon and the Dragon Knight, and other champions. Each man bore a famous sword, and surely Oathkeeper belonged in their company, even if she herself did not. You'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel, Jamie had promised. Kneeling between the bed and the wall, she held the blade and said a silent prayer to the crone, whose golden lamp showed men the way through life. Lead me, she prayed. Light the way before me. Show me the path that leads to Sansa. She had failed Renly, had failed Lady Catelyn. She must not fail Jamie. He trusted me with his sword. He trusted me with his honor. Fuck off, Eliana, first of all, <laughs> is how I feel about that. <laughs> It's canon, though. It's there. It's written there. <laughs> Jamie's sword is veiny. Red <laughs> ripples ran deep. Something's sliding in her throat. <laughs> Sorry, Shiloh. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining. I really like your book a lot. <laughs> I hope you've really been made to feel welcome here, Shiloh. I hope you're feeling... Real intimate with us. <laughs> us, Jamie, Brienne. <sighs> Poor Brienne thinking she's not good enough for this sword when honestly she's the best knotted knight in the entire series. But also people give Sansa a lot of shit for believing in the stories and saying that makes her yeah. stupid or something. And here's Brienne also using them as role models, but having seen enough of the world to not expect most people to live up to them. I think that this mix of belief and expectations are going to be what puts people like Brienne and Sansa in a better place to see out the end of the story, because despite everyone else being assholes, they hold themselves to a higher standard. Absolutely. Yes. 
Yeah, I love I love the comparison that you've pointed out between Brienne and Sansa and how they look to the songs, uh, because that's very much there, and it's how they think that the world should be. And like you said, they've grown enough to realize that it, it isn't right. We follow the, both of their journeys as they move from like the songs and as shoulds to, but not are in terms of the world, not how the world is. But in general, I do uh, feel that stories tell us a lot about a person. I feel that way in real life, like what people's stories that they relate to tell us about them. And George uses that to great effect here and uses it well for characterization across the entire um, series. And the stories that Brienne says she remembers and listened to are ones that are similar to the ones that fascinated Bran, who also has had knighthood stories. Mm-hmm taken from him as a dream uh they're similar to rob and john you know remember them screaming like i'm aiming the dragon knight and I'm like is that what you want um anyways they're <laughs> they're people that we associate as being great warriors in the series uh just like brienne and so we see which set of roles brienne has internalized and the values that she wants to live up to and to come back to some of that arthurian legend stuff it feels significant that sir galadin of morn is among those stories and listed first of of them because Galadin is remembered apparently as being a perfect knight much like Mm -hmm. as you've pointed out in your essays how Galahad is like that perfect knight and very much has parallels with Brienne and Mm -hmm. she also apparently had a brother named Galadin and Galadin of these stories of Morn may have been from Tarth Morn might be in Tarth and his sword is interestingly called the Just Maid Mm. I don't know if I understand uh, how sword names work. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to add. Well, I mean, I do because if it's a just made and you're just plunging into people, I don't know. Actually, I don't know either. <laughs> to change my assholes, mind, according to Sandor, but <laughs> that's true too. Well, while Brienne's bed is large, it's not large enough for her, so she has to lay across it sideways, trying to avoid the fleas in a bed. It's not like a possible thing to do if you're laying in a bed that has... Anyways, she could hear Hibbled and the knights coming upstairs later on. She hears Creighton drunkenly replaying his glory story of the blood-red chicken shield man, and his voice fades out. She waits until the men are all abed, and then she ghosts the fuck out of them, packs up, gets on her mare, heads the fuck out. Absolutely. And we have the closing line of, Then the trees closed in around her. Black as pitch and full of ghosts and memories. I am coming for you, Lady Sansa, she thought as she rode into the darkness. Be not afraid. I shall not rest until I've found you. That's such a great closing line. Yes. So good. So George does this with a lot of characters where they have kind of a running conversation in their heads with people who aren't there. John thinks at Egret, Kat thinks at Ned, Tyrion at Tysha and Shay, and I think Brienne might be the only one who does it at someone that she's never actually met. Hmm. And I wonder how that'll affect their meeting their meeting when they finally do meet, because I don't think it's going to be like in The Bad Show where they made Sansa this ice queen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same. There's a lot of things that I don't think they're going to do like a show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. But there are also <laughs> a lot of things I think George will end. Anyways, I will say the dubbing into Sansa's service scene was really nice, especially Echoing Cat. I think we'll probably see some variation of that. And mm-hmm. part of me thinks, like, 
we might have her meet Arya first or see Arya first before Sansa. But I think, no, I think her ships in the night are going to get just missed for both of them, right? Like, I think she's just going to miss Arya. She's just going to miss Sansa. And I think she won't meet them till she goes north, maybe. Um, mm. Maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. I-, I am curious to see when they finally join up. And I love that this chapter ends talking to Sansa, like you said, who she's never met after having laid a lot of her own worries at Sansa's memory and thought throughout the whole entire chapter, right? Of like what Sansa mm-hmm. would do, what Brienne would do if she were Sansa. Uh, Sansa's probably doing this. And you'd think that she would end the chapter thinking of Jamie, right? Because that's pretty much what she always does is think about Jamie throughout a chapter. But she thinks of this l- girl, this girl who's so alone, much like she is in these moments, a girl who believes in songs, both of them, do and, and I do think there's something in the line "Be not afraid, I shall not rest until I've found you," mm-hmm. much like the Catholic hymn "Be not afraid." Uh, something mm-hmm. feels like Brienne throughout this entire chapter has openly been having to embrace the faith that they want her to embrace for the reasons they want her to embrace it. Right? Like you'll need to vow to the seven because you're a woman. Vow to the seven this way. You need to pray to the seven like this if you want to be forgiven for your sins, uh, for, you know, your crime of being a woman. And at the end of the chapter, she has that moment to herself of, be not afraid, I am coming for you. Uh, almost of her, like, being able to worship in her own way of what she believes of her own faith. And right now she believes in that sword, right? Mm-hmm. And somewhat in herself. Uh, and I do find her ghosting these men awesome, obviously, because that's <laughs> what everyone should idealize too. But I also, I've talked in the past about how this this moment right here, maybe even her ghosting people and not trusting might be flipped in The Winds of Winter, right? Like ghosting her duty to do a man instead of ghosting a man to do her duty. Mm. I think that could happen in The Winds of Winter. Get him, get him, you know, maybe she'll <laughs> ghost Jamie instead. That could be cool, too. Not like stonehearting him. That's a different kind of ghosting. Uh, but I don't know. I'm interested to see. And I love that closing faithful remark. Be not afraid. I mean, ghosting your duty to have sex is pretty fun. <laughs> but <laughs> She should try it at least once. She should try it at least once. She might like it. <laughs> Um, I I love what you pointed out here about, like, her talking to Sansa and also, like, when will she meet Sansa and how she's kind of pinning, as between what both of you said, like, she's also pinning a lot of her hopes on Sansa. Like, and, and she's kind of made Sansa, I, I don't know if you can say more about this also, Shiloh, but, like, she's projected a lot of on Sansa in mm-hmm. a way that people projected a lot on her because of her gender and that like Sansa oh no she needs to be protected she needs like my me there because she's also very gentle even though Brienne's of the gentle sex and we find like Sansa is learning to be she has been a survivor for all this time has had mm-hmm. to already survive a lot of si- violence and assault um physically and sexually combined but it, do you have any thoughts on like what it what it means like in terms of Sansa being like that Holy Grail, that object at the end that is being quested for. And obviously like that maiden, right? She's positioned mm-hmm. as the maiden who must be rescued. It'll be really interesting to see, I guess, just how far George sticks with the whole Arth- Arthurian thing. Cause I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to, I don't think he's going to finish up quite the same as like the Morta Arthur or anything. 
Sure. But it'll be interesting to see if Sansa ends up having any parallels with like a Grail Maiden or something, mm-hmm. being that everybody's trying to find her. Kind of like the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, with, with the whole Brienne Galahad thing. But Shadrick finds her first, not Brienne. So, hmm. Is Shadrick gonna die? That's what happened to everybody else who tried to find the Grail. <laughs> I mean, Shadrick doesn't strike me as a like. He doesn't strike me as like he he's got to be here for the long haul kind of character. But he could surprise mm-hmm. me. Yeah, he, mice are supposed to do that. <laughs> One of these lines that we read as we were nearing the end of like she had failed, Renly had failed Lady Catelyn. She must not fail Jamie. But she probably does kind of fail Jamie a little. She fails a lot. Can you expand upon, or would you be willing to expand a little bit upon this idea of, like, this constant times of her failing and the knight errant quest? The knights and the the romances fail all the time. And it's always about failing in ways that then they have to come back from and be better men afterwards. So... Yeah, she'll probably, it's kind of a learn from your mistakes. Fail again, fail better. (laughs) Kind of a thing. That's true. And she might, she'll probably fail a lot, but she'll end up coming back from it. I think. I think she's one of the ones who survives. So I don't think that she ends up dead (laughs) from all of her failures. Yeah. But but it, it will essentially temper her and make her the person that they need at the end of the story to help fight all the bad stuff. The truest knight. Yeah. Yeah, the truest knight. The one knight. true knight. <sighs> she is. Are there no true knights among you? Brienne stands up. <laughs> Brienne. Uh, <laughs> bitch. Uh, I hope that for her. You know, before we close out, ladies, I did think of something else. You know, she keeps talking about how she talked to Brella. Wasn't Brella under Varys's employ? Just like Shadrich being oh. under Varys's money, Brella was one of Varys's handmaids, I think, that was planted there, or one of the women who reported to him. So, was Brienne fed some false info? Hmm. I don't. I don't know. Like, because I'm also like Varys. I guess tried. Di- Varys is very into like just try different things. You know, something's gonna yield. Maybe like they would still give Brienne good information. To be like, I mean, if she finds her, that's us also, like, at least knowing where she is, maybe, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I did find that the line is, Varys had suggested the woman to him. In former days, she had run Lord Renly's household in the city, which had given her a great deal of practice at being blind, deaf, and mute. Oh, she was Renly's housekeeper as well. <gasps> oh, interesting. Kept some hmm. house very quiet, I bet. <laughs> hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Means. Poor Brienne. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's not like she gave terrible information, because it would have led her to Duskendale, which is where Sir Shadrick is going, and then... Right. Who knew? This is like the one person Varys probably didn't think he had to discount for. He was probably like, yeah, Brella, here's a few stags. Just make sure to misguide her a couple ways. She'll be easy, not formidable. Yeah, or maybe he thought <laughs> Brienne would want the money. Who knows? Maybe. Like, yeah, why not? 
And obviously he thinks that Brienne's quite tied perhaps to the Lannisters. Yeah. She did she did do that she did do that one thing decently. She thinks she'd like failed. But I'm like, mm, he's alive, he's back there. <laughs> you did it. You delivered one person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that about wraps us up on the end of Brienne One in a feast for crows. Shiloh, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us today. We could not have done this episode without you. Thank you for having me. Oh, always. There is always <laughs> a host spot open whenever you're in the neighborhood. Swing on through and we'll ha- be ha- more than happy to have you. The honor was all ours and it was a horse. It was Please a horse. Let us all know at home where to find you on the internet and in print as well. So I'm at Shiloh Carroll, two R's, two L's, dot wordpress.com, and on Twitter at Medievalism-ish, because Medievalism-ist was taken, so I had to get as close as I could. And we'll include links to all of Shiloh's stuff in the notes for this episode. And of course, if you would like to find us on social media also you can find us at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n or perhaps you have thoughts that you would like to share with us maybe you have thoughts that you would like to share in response to the things also shiloh has said you can shoot us an email at girls canon at gmail.com you can also dm us on our social media or like send us a message like tweet there too that's also possible absolutely and of course if you haven't already please subscribe to us on a podcast streaming platform near you. You can find us at Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, you name it, we're on there. Yes. Places we are also on Patreon. You can always find us there and get your own personalized RSS feed, and if you are in the Stranger Tier or above, the $5 or above, you get a bonus episode every month. Last month was His Dark Materials, and this month is going to be A Song of Ice and Fire, and it is going to be about Nymeria. Nymeria, November. Pew, pew, pew. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Once again, thank you, Shiloh, for joining us to be another, another one of your hosts. Oh my God. Am I now officially a girl gone canon? Yes. You have now That's gone fully canon. But this is how it you. works. You, this is the end. Uh, this is you. Oh my God. A grail. You're a knight. But maybe we'll send you on another quest and you can have like a raunchy, you can have like a raunchy thing that happens to you. You can like disregard (laughs) your duty to go have sex also. Um, We W a girl gone canon in the name of the mother. We W a girl gone canon in the name of the father. We W a girl gone canon in the name of the maid. I W a girl gone canon in the name of the crone, of the warrior, of the smith, of the stranger. Am I missing one? I don't know, but you're dubbed. You are dubbed. We'll see you all next week for Brienne 2. Have a great day slash night slash etc. But would it be better if she were subbed as a girl gone canon? Dubbed versus subbed. The great debate. Oh my god. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.